All right. Conquest of Bread, part two. It's still the same part of the book. We divided it into two parts. (laughs) Yes. So we'll be starting on chapter six. We just got done talking all the way through about uh, how to do the anarcho-communist revolution and how to get everyone fed. Important. Super important. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, cool. Let's move on to dwellings. Where are we going to live? Are we going to be in tents? Are we going to be underground? What's happening? What is happening here? So Kropotkin kind of takes a look at this and and raises some questions like, okay, people are like, oh, I'm just going to be thrown out of my house. You know, (laughs) it's going to be bad. And he's like, dude, it's already bad. Like things are, you know, housing is treated as a scarce thing. Housing is treated as private property of this one guy or this one, you know, nowadays, this one real estate company or whatever. When really, how did they, you know, they didn't build the house in the first place. So first of all, it's off of someone's stolen labor, you know, and they didn't build the house in a desert (laughs) where no one wants to live. Yeah, like he's saying there's a whole bunch of value that comes from, you know, classic location, right? That's what I wrote. And you didn't do anything to create that location, <laughs> so it's ne- the value of it is not yours, is what he's saying. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So, again, the idea of, like, communal value for for things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we, we talked about it in part one. That was a big part of the early thesis of just, like, you can't evaluate you can't come up with how much specifically everyone contributes because we're all because we're all you know kind of backpacking off of Mm -hmm. earlier contributions yeah this reminds me of a movie i didn't finish watching (laughs) (laughs) it's on netflix it's called worth and it's about like this court case where the this guy has to determine like the like monetary worth of everyone who died in 9-11 in case like people decide to sue and so he's like trying to give them a settlement and it's so fucked up like we couldn't watch it we're just like oh i don't want this Jeez, yeah (laughs) i didn't haven't watched it at all i've only watched a little intro clip you know yeah yeah it (laughs) it was rough it was rough stuff next he kind of talks about rent basically like nerds are gonna want to keep rent and we shouldn't do that yeah yeah rent sucks let's (laughs) abolish it yeah fuck yeah we can all get behind that his strategy for this is pretty simple just refuse the rent (laughs) when the revolution comes and the people are like hey yeah but i own this place you got to pay rent just be like yeah well we're all not paying rent (laughs) (laughs) so i i guess i didn't include this in my question list so time for improv for you I'm a DM, so I'm good at this. Yeah, right. <laughs> Pretend you know what you're doing. Roll some dice. Give me an answer. <laughs> he makes a, a comment about the commune, or they only stopped rent payments for a few months. Mm-hmm. Due up to the 1st of April only? What the fuck? Was this was this the good commune or just another commune? No, he's talking about the commune, the Paris the commune one. of 1871. No, that's my favorite commune. To be fair, they were around from, from March to May. That's true. They didn't have a lot of time. (laughs) (laughs) So maybe they could have revisited this issue when the time came. But he's right, I guess, that they did put this on a provisional payment. They did lower rents and and, and postponed them, given the emergency. But they weren't saying, we're completely abolishing this as a thing that, you know, like, and that could have, I think, made a difference. Yeah, that's shitty. Not an existential difference. I want to say that they would probably still have lost, given the forces arrayed against them and their capabilities but yeah i think that would be something we would do differently yeah because even 
if like they never got to that date of like, hey, your rent is due, I think mentally the people would still be there. Like you'd still be like putting aside money and stuff for rent when it's like you you shouldn't have to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like that that puts you in a different state of mind, I feel like. Right. You are more concerned with, yeah, I know that we need to be preparing for a siege, but I'm preparing for having to take care of these responsibilities still. So fuck off provisional government. Exactly. You're, you're still in that like survival mindset instead of a community mindset. So he says, yeah, no more rent. Uh, and people are just going to, I mean, communally enforce that. We're just going to take that right for ourselves. <laughs> I love that. I, he like says nerds are going to want to compensate landlords, do means testing, all that stuff, theories and research. Like you're going to have a lot of West Wing bros, basically. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, their favorite thing is an earned income tax credit. They, yeah, they can means test anything to within the dollar. They're the people that insist on reading aloud the entire rule book before you play a new board game. <laughs> aloud. Yeah. <laughs> aloud. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Uh, but he says, yeah, let's not bother with that. Don't delay. Don't get held up with counting beans. Go for it. Like the same way, you know, we figured out the food reserves by just having the food brigade go out, figure out how much food we got and get it distributed. Uh, we'll do the same thing with housing. We'll tally it up. And then you, (laughs) you show up at town square and pick where you're going to live. Yeah. We get to our first what I call Spongebob text, which a dear listener DM'd me, and I cannot find their DM, so sorry. If this was you, you're great. They sent me (laughs) a bot that will do this for you. You just, like, enter text, and it'll alt caps for you. So that's pretty great. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) So my first instance of Spongebob text is, but everyone want a big house. (laughs) Right? And he says kind of, no, they won't. Uh... You don't have servants to <laughs> clean your big house for you, so you would end up with just a big, fucking messy house. Yeah, yeah, and just no one's going to want to take care of that. And I, I think this to me kind of foreshadows a later chapter where he talks about women and domestic labor because mm-hmm. he's like, "Are you just expecting your wife to take care of a gigantic house?" Right. Yeah, or <laughs> someone to do that. Yeah, you have. I think then again the nerds. <laughs> I don't actually hate nerds. I am a nerd. No, yeah. But you have the rules Nazis coming through, being like, "Well, we should just empty everyone out, and then we reassign by lots and all that." That's way more inconvenient than just kind of working from what we already have. You know, like there's gonna be discomfort. There's gonna be people who try to abuse the system. There's gonna be like you know fucking rule breakers, but we just try to limit them. Yeah, and. Uh, okay, I mean, his his solution to limiting that is kind of just popular force or... Uh, pressure. Pop, popular pressure, yeah. Yeah, like you don't want to be the asshole sitting up in your big mansion alone. <laughs> and again, how would you enforce that? You can't hire anyone to be a guard for you. So typically you're like, you know, your bourgeois or your aristocratic people with these houses aren't, you know, there because they're the biggest motherfucker that can, you know mess people up if they try to get on their property they're just you know they have guards and stuff like it's i mean nowadays i guess they probably have some sort of 
It's just like assault rifles and crazy weapons because they're <laughs> those kind of guys. But Or just like advanced security systems and like the police on call, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you won't have the Or police. private security. So, I mean, there would be kind of an, a complicated element of like, how would we actually get these, you know, rich assholes that live around here out of, you know. But then again, you do have to go back to who's going to take care of the houses now, so hmm Like, it would just be inconvenient to do that. Right. They're, they're going to quickly be, like, trying to downsize. Also, he's talking about a city here. And I'm picturing, like, in the suburbs, this would act a lot. I mean, this, this would be a way different experience. I was thinking about that, too. Like, throughout the book, he, he sometimes will make dichotomy between city and rural areas. Like, he brings it up here. Like, well, it's not fair that, like, the country doesn't get nice houses. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, I mean, it's also not fair that we, like, abuse them economically. But, yeah, I kept thinking, like, what the fuck are the suburbs going to do? Yeah. <laughs> like, it wasn't a thing at that time because you didn't have cars. That's a good point. So, yeah, this just, like, they didn't have to deal with that, really. So, like, in the housing question, most people in the suburbs, I would imagine, live in a bigger house than they need. So, it's like, are we going to relocate people from, like, a crowded area and be like, hey, you're living with these guys now? Well, eventually, we would be relocating. And eventually we would be structuring society differently. And we'll get to this later some. Uh, and it's something that um, that Marx and Engels talked about, or especially Marx in the Communist Manifesto mentions the end of the distinction between the city and the countryside and the, kind of the leveling out of that will have to happen in, on a, in an anarcho-communist situation because, I mean, for one, we're not going to be driving everywhere. Yeah, and, like, you're going to be more focused on like production so like your yards are probably all going to become gardens <laughs> yes which i will love yeah that's going to be rad <laughs> and i don't know yeah it's it's there's a lot that i guess is not addressed because of the time period you know and because of the setting and, and he kind of admits this like hey i'm talking about the world as i see it but like it's going to be different in every country and he doesn't mention this but it's going to be different in every time when it's applied well, I think he kind of hints at it, like when he talks about even just modifying the mansions mm-hmm. and like basically restructuring them so they can house multiple people and are like useful spaces and also building completely new structures that are useful for this new lifestyle. So like, I, I think that's what would end up happening is in the suburbs too, is like people would like, we'd probably go back to having some like multi-generational family houses and like, you know, you live with your friends maybe like you just have like more roommates basically. Yeah. Ultimately I agree with his uh, statement that like, yes, we're not stuck with the housing supply we have. We can build more houses. You know, it's not like we're just going to be scavenging off the scraps forever. It's very (laughs) post-apocalyptic. Right. We can build more houses and build them in a different way, structure around what society wants now he kind of mentions this somewhere that like, we don't want everything to be like a barrack situation. Like a lot of people want to be, want to have privacy and separation from people. And we get that. You don't want to make everybody like live right next door to everyone all the time. No, thank you. One of the ways that utopians run aground is by trying to figure all these details out. Well, I appreciate that he brings that up as, as an introverted person. (laughs) And I, I can't remember where he makes this point, but he kind of compares it to prison of that's why prison is so bad because you have no privacy or if you like get in trouble, you have 
uh, solitary confinement, which is like also very bad for you mentally. We don't want people in those in either of those situations. Like I'm thinking a cute little courtyard in the middle and like little cabins all around, you know, like we could go tiny house if we wanted to be a little more eco <laughs> about it. Like it could be rad. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. There's tons of ways. And I think really he's got a good point here that we do the revolution and we take, you know, we make do with what we've got and use that time at, you know, once we have seized power or lack thereof, right? But, you know, abolish the power that was over us and we're in control of our own destinies. That's the time to figure out the details of how it's actually going to work because that's when you for real know what your conditions are. Oh, also eco-domes, little hobbit houses. Oh, hell yeah. Because then you can like put plants and shit on the roof. That's more green space for your garden. And it just looks so cozy. A hobbit house. Yeah, it looks really cute. (laughs) (laughs) Hobbit houses for all. Well-being for all. All right. (laughs) Absolutely. And then you get a million food, like a million meals. Yes. That's the the summary of that chapter. (laughs) Next chapter is clothing. What am I going to wear? You know, I'm a big jumpsuit fan. I don't want it to be gray. No jumpsuits. They're all, all gray. Uh, no. It's supremely gendered. <laughs> no. Girls wear ribbons. Boys wear boots. And that's all you've got. Those <laughs> no. are the two choices. No. <laughs> that's not enough clothes. First off, everyone's nude besides ribbons and boots. <laughs> I meant like on their, you know. Okay. As an accessory. Yeah. That's how you tell between the only two genders. No. Um. <sighs> so what do they have? in the anarchist utopia for clothing. Once again, we're not going to ask everyone to dump out their entire closet <laughs> into the street. That would be terrible. <laughs> yeah. He, and he mentions this. Who wants to wear that? Like, <laughs> No, thank you. Like, <laughs> sizing is going to be an issue. Like, uh-huh. I don't know where you've been. Like, no, thank you. So he says, yeah, keep your stuff. Honestly, we don't want it. Honestly, we have tons of stuff. Apparently, they had this where he was at back then even. I thought that was interesting. They have tons of stuff already in stockpiles. It's like, we definitely have that now. Oh, for sure. Like, everyone donates clothes when it's like, we don't need any more clothes, guys. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, check in the back. It's there. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, yeah. Go appropriate the old Navy. Take what you need. And then, you know, we also have a clothing industry that won't be around, you know, afterward because it's based on exploitation but you do have people who design and create clothes on their own and they can continue to do that for people and i imagine everyone will have to get a little better about some sewing skills like i think mending is going to come back in a big way which it already kind of has there's a thing like that's kind of a trend now i I need to fucking learn to sew is what i'm saying i have a pile of things (laughs) i need to fix But yeah, I think we're going to be a little more focused on sustainability and like getting like good practical clothes, which he also touches on, like people being like, well, everyone's going to want a fancy dress. And it's like, well, you can't farm in a fancy dress. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. What what purpose would that serve? I mean, it look cool. Maybe everyone will want like some cool outfit. Sure. I mean, I will. Yeah, and you got plenty of free time, so like you're going to be going out and just hanging out or whatever. But it's not going to be everyone's going to only want those. (laughs) You're going to want stuff that's like comfortable and practical and durable because you're going to be working. But yeah, you can always change into your crazy clothes after your work day. Yeah, and there's probably a distinction, honestly. 
in the same way there's a distinction between the housing situation at the beginning and then going forward or the food situation at the beginning and going forward like early on we're just going to want to make sure everybody's got enough and then we're going to be like cool well how do we make this awesome you know you can still go clubbing in the early days of the revolution. Just wear whatever you've got, though, you know, and then it's later cool. you can get a cool outfit to do it in. <laughs> I have a cool new term for the future of fashion. Mm, okay. I'm going to call it Carhartt communism. Ah, what would that entail? <laughs> you know, those overalls? Uh-huh. Everyone wears those overalls. Because he talks about, like, having a, a social change where, like, hard work and generosity will be valued and, like, fashion is going to reflect that. So I'm ah. like, yeah, we're all going to wear, like, cool overalls and, like, workwear. Like, workwear is going to be very fashionable. Yeah. We're all going to look like auto mechanics. Yeah, basically. It's kind of cool. I mean, there's jumpsuits in that, so I'll be fine. <laughs> I love jumpsuits and overalls, so I'm yeah. going to be happy. And boots, so. I'm just, like, t-shirt and jeans, sort of, so. Yeah, I don't know what you'll do. <laughs> you can probably farm. Jeans were originally like farming wear. Yeah. So I can manage. I'll figure something out. <laughs> uh, with all my extra time, it'll be nice. So. Yeah. Yeah. You can get a makeover. All right. So yeah, clothing is going to be handled the same way as housing also. So you'll have like the clothing squad to go around and, and figure out what all clothes we've got and then make sure everybody's got clothes, right? Basically, yeah. Yeah, these other chapters are easy because we've already established all those themes. <laughs> all right, chapter eight, ways and means. I'm trying to remember what this one's about. It doesn't have an easy name like food or right. clothing. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is how are we actually going to carry this all out? You know, uh, okay, we need to guarantee gotcha. life's necessities. Cool. How? And he says uh, one way that we can't do this is through capitalism. For sure. <laughs> it was very good at building up you know productive forces and yeah you know, that's the same thing we've read that in marx and engels is capitalism has you know just like kropotkin lays out in the first part it's exploited all these natural resources extremely if you know extremely well and built up the treasures of the earth and all that but that does not mean it's very good at uh providing for actual human needs yeah i think that's interesting that he even like gives it that credit because i i think in a lot of marxist stuff we've read where it's like well it's that anarchy production being like yeah this is really inefficient but i mean like this is saying like it's it's very productive but like for the wrong reasons i guess mm -hmm. and i i don't know i think there is the marx and engels both do explicitly say like this was very good at the like the brutal accumulation the capital accumulation like it did that and they all agree it didn't do it for the right reasons it uh did that just to make some people some money so we were very good at producing a lot of shit that a lot of people don't need really and excesses of it but it was good at like getting more efficient i guess factories and stuff like that yeah like i i kind of think of it as it's done all of its can for this world like we gotta yes. move on uh-huh I like this quote here. He says, the capitalist has endeavored in his own interest to increase the yield of work, but to attribute other duties to him would be unreasonable. For example, to expect that he should use this superior yield of work in the interest of society as a whole would be to ask philanthropy and charity of him. And capital enterprise cannot be based on charity. They're not going to change their stripes. Like, that's not 
what they are. Yeah, they got there like by being these ruthless assholes, like the Elon Musk stands and stuff like that. Oh yeah, he, he like, donates so much. Yeah, and he's you know he's so smart and he's figured out all these problems. Like he should just figure out everything else too. Like <laughs> no, no, thank you. These guys are very good at like exploiting people at taking their already advantageous position in society that they started with and making more from it. Like their skill set doesn't translate into providing for human <laughs> needs. That's, that's not it. That's just not. Yeah. Like that, that's not how they operate. He kind of gets to the quality of life argument that you get a lot when people are like, well, we have a really high standard of living, you know, it's better than living in another country. It's, you know, would you rather be a caveman kind of arguments? Mm-hmm. We've got nice things. Yeah, yeah, like, look how comfortable you are. But he points out, like, look how tenuous it is. And it really is. Like, if you get fired, if you get, like, terminally ill, or even just, you know, chronically ill, which is also bad, you know, if you have a baby, like, any of these things can just, like, send you down a pit of debt. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's nice while it lasts. And uh, this is more and more true. Like, there was a period of time where you could more safely rely on, okay, while it lasts, it's fine, but eventually I retire and have like, you know, a decent plan for that. And that's just more and more going away. Yeah. Maybe 10 years at the end, just to poop in your pants. There's less and less in terms of any sort of social safety net. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of returning to his times when there just wasn't a social safety there net. There just wasn't like you work and then you die. And there's also the, you know, I like he's he's kind of talking about the skilled workmen here, but in our day, maybe the uh, kind of white collar class of people who kind of have it well. Well, okay, that also depends, you know, not only is it temporary, but that also depends on the exploitation of other people. And he's talking about the peasants or, you know, or maybe we could say the minimum wage workers or go global with it, the, you know, exploited people uh, around the world, like away from the imperial core. Absolutely, it does. Like, yeah, everything we consume comes at a cost. Yeah. And he actually includes this idea, even in, you know, the 1890s. This is not merely accidental. It is a necessity of the capitalist system. In order to remunerate certain classes of workmen, peasants must become the beasts of burden of society. The country must be deserted for the town. Eastern lands in a backward state are exploited by the West in order that under the capital system, workers in a few privileged industries may obtain certain limited comforts of life. Yeah, I mean, even in that time period, they were already doing like what all the opium wars and shit like that. Like, it's very obvious that's what people were doing. Yeah. So yeah, we can't can't depend on the system, guys. I don't know if you made it this far in the podcast without figuring that out, but maybe you know. it's your first time. Welcome. Could be your so. first one. I you should could listen to part one of this book. But that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, you had a question here, right? Yeah, I just didn't understand this last couple of paragraphs in in section one. I was like, mm, I'm not sure. <laughs> okay. He says, the evil of the present system is therefore not that the surplus value of production goes to the capitalists, uh, thus narrowing the socialist conception and the general view of the capitalist system. The surplus value itself is but a consequence of deeper causes. The evil lies in the possibility of a surplus value existing instead of a surplus value not consumed by each generation for that a surplus value should exist means that men, women, and children are compelled by hunger to sell their labor 
for a small part of what this labor produces and above all of what their labor is capable of producing. Is it the idea that if you have a surplus, that means you didn't take care of everybody? Because that doesn't seem right. <laughs> no, no, no. That's, yeah. Generally, when you have uh, when you have a society producing for its needs, you know, you, you, you might end up producing such that, and this can depend with like just harvests or whatever, more than people, you know, actually end up wanting that year. And that's fine. He's saying that'll happen. Not a big deal. Uh, what he's talking about here is surplus value. The difference between the amount you can sell a thing for and the amount that it costs the owner to make that thing. Okay, gotcha. And he's saying, you know, it's it's not just unfair that capitalists are taking that surplus value, like ripping off their workers, right? That's bad. Uh, but it's unfair that they can do that, that they have the power to do that if they want. So what he's criticizing here is that there is a market where you sell stuff for a certain thing, for a certain price, and you produce things for another price. Like Because what some people argue is that we should just have like worker co-ops. We should just kind of have a fair capitalism where you have firms producing these things and selling them for a profit, but that they all... But they split the profit. That they split fairly, right? And he's saying it's bad to like just leave capitalism in place and hope you have nice capitalists because one day they'll wake up and say, I don't want to be nice. <laughs> exactly. But it's also bad to have... It's not bad, you know, it's, it's not enough to have worker co-ops because what about the, you know, the rest of the economy where exploitation is still rampant? And you're also, by selling things in a market, you're saying only certain people can have these things, the people who can afford to pay enough. Yeah, that makes sense. Like the idea of if you made a profit, that means you're still using money, which means like, and, and if you have a co-op, like what if you're in a field that is valued less and so you can't afford those things? Like, yeah, there's still, there's still problems. <laughs> right, yeah. And especially what if you're in a co-op of uh, food production? You're still saying only the rich enough people can have the right to this food, which we've already covered. No. like That's fucked up. <laughs> uh, the main goal still needs to be the greatest amount of goods you know, necessary for the well-being of all with the least possible waste of human energy. He's, he's kind of repeating the point that like we can't do these half measures. We don't want to do wages. We don't want to do co-ops. We, we want to dismantle the whole power structure the whole like capitalists are in charge or the market is in charge and have it to where people are producing for human needs okay so i think what would help me is if in this paragraph they replace surplus value with just profit like net profit <laughs> that's fair yeah this would have been understood because Marx had written about this. Okay, he's referencing. Yeah, and he was referencing uh, the Ricardian economic theories uh, mm. that the idea of surplus value was based on. But yeah, you're right. It's just okay. profit. It's profit. All mm -hmm. right. So readers, if you want to read this paragraph, just replace that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. And so that's how he wraps up part one there. Section two of Ways and Means. Y'all, we don't have to work that much. <laughs> That's basically what this whole section is. Like, he does a lot of math. <laughs> Which I like, because early on, he was saying, like, yeah, I'm not going to get into details, but here he... And then he definitely does. He starts calculating it out. <laughs> he also gives a random shout out to Ben Franklin. Uh, oh, I thought that was interesting. So, <laughs> Apparently, Ben Franklin also thought about this. Like, eh, we don't need to work that hard. Which gives him more time to fuck French ladies. Yeah, so, like, so I get it. <laughs> I, I understand why he was the one who came up with that. He had better shit to do. 
Yeah, he's like, I'm trying to drink wine and get laid. I don't need to work this long. <laughs> but yeah, let's work like five hours a day, four or five hours a day. I kind of already do that. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's that sounds good. That sounds great. And he like gets really into details. Like, so I think it was for for food. It was thirty hours, six half days of five hours each to make enough bread for the year. A thirty-hour work year. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. <laughs> Housing thirty to forty half days a year. Clothing ten half days a year. Maybe seventeen hours total. Because like he he differentiates between like plain cotton and printed cotton, so like whatever. Well, yeah, and a lot of this was detailed such to where I was like, this probably none of this probably applies anymore. No, absolutely not. We're not like you know doing a lot of looming and yeah. Stuff, think about the know? clothing is just turn on the machine and yeah, you're good. I mean, I know that there are sweatshops for a reason. People have to like actually stitch stuff and and do things. So sure. But yeah, I think all these times would be cut drastically. Yeah. In general, Mm -hmm. the main idea, I guess the point remains, we could work a lot less if we were focused on serving people's needs instead of creating enough of what makes the capitalists some profit, you know? Yeah. He comes out to in the 1890s again with that technology, half a year's work to provide for everybody including days off for holidays. Wow. Yeah. See, there you go. So you're only working half the year. And so if that's just for your like necessities, you can still make things like, you know, coffee and wine and furniture and like, you know, luxury goods. Yes. Which we'll get into in the next chapter. Chapter nine, the need for luxury. I love it. I love my fancy things. You have a (laughs) strong need for luxury. I do. I'm a little bougie. (laughs) I like to imagine myself as, you know, I've got lowbrow taste and I'm a man of the people or whatever. But come on, like everybody's got their own things that they're luxurious about, I think. That's true. Yeah. Like whether you're like really into coffee or, you know, you're really into good food. Got all minor food. (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's things though, like video games even or like entertainment stuff. I was going to say technology for me. I like like my fancy technology. So travel a lot of people that's their thing yeah having lots of cats kropotkin even gets into it here yeah lots of cats uh, <laughs> <laughs> definitely oh you and abby will be the cat house in the yes. commune <laughs> all the neighborhood cats live there like they're fucking aristocats lady that'd be great <laughs> yeah so i mean he just says he opens man however is not a being whose exclusive purpose in life is eating drinking and providing a shelter for himself I love his line saying that these trifles that break the monotony of existence and make it agreeable. Like, yes, like he calls out people who are kind of ascetic in that way and are like, no, like you just need what you need to survive. It's like, enjoy things, guys. It's okay. Yeah. You should do that. Life's about, you know, experiencing things. So enjoy it. Yeah. Don't just get by like you're, you know, eking out an existence. He says, treat yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And we have the right to this. He says, after bread has been secured, leisure is the supreme aim. Definitely addressing the the idea of barracks communism here. You know, people going, isn't it going to be all gray and sad and just like, you know, just survival? Right. Yeah. I think it's cool, though, because he does kind of raise a good point that right now in our world, we kind of see or there's a tendency 
on the left, I mean, the right doesn't care about this, but like <laughs> uh, on the left, there's a tendency to see kind of luxurious things as kind of a crime or unseemly. Oh, you shouldn't be doing that. And there, you know, obviously there's bad faith critiques of like, yeah, you're a socialist, but you have an iPhone, like, you know, right? <laughs> and he says, yeah, right now the production of luxuries does require exploitation of somebody, you know, and it requires poverty, it requires this inequality to, to have these luxuries. So that's why it feels icky. But once no one's hungry, once we have, you know, pulled off the conquest of bread and all necessities have been taken care of, there is no harm in having luxuries at that point because you're not being an asshole to anybody to get them. Yeah, you're not exploiting anyone's labor. You're Someone made this thing and you would like to use that thing. Yeah, and again, this is not to say that even now you, uh, uh, we're saying it's understandable why you would feel icky about it, but you shouldn't like you shouldn't. It's okay. place the blame solely on yourself. You're a part of a larger society that has structured things so unfairly. You know, unless you like own the sweatshop and then are using whatever then they make. You should, like, feel you should feel bad, bad about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't like that you're doing that. Please stop. Please if you're stop listening. That. I don't know how you got here, but but stop what you're but doing. Welcome. Stop what you're doing welcome. and join <laughs> Quit us. Your job. Become a class trader. <laughs> he kind of gets to the, the library of things here, I think. The idea of not everyone needs a telescope. Not everyone is going to want a telescope or a piano, or whatever it is they're into. Like, not everyone has the same hobbies. Yeah, tastes differ in tastes that differ. regard. <laughs> and he's kind of mentioning those um, utopian communist societies that tried to just be like, well, here's the violin. You can play it on your off hours. I thought it was interesting that those were American communes because they were kind of, like, religious in nature. So it is that idea of, like, you know, you have to withhold pleasure from right. yourself. Yeah, but idle hands are the devil's plaything, so give them something productive to do. Read the Bible. Yeah, and he's like, this is not where it's at. Like, this one, no. this will work for some people, he even kind of admits. And I think that's fairly true, but you always have this creative impulse that goes in different directions. And you just can't contain that. Like, people are people, and they're going to want to be themselves. Yeah, and and I like, again, how he points out that in our current system, you can really only pursue, like, artistic or even scientific needs through wealth. Like, and, like, I was like, yup. Like, my, my artistic career only took off once I had a very good salary. It's just true, and it sucks. You have to have, like, the resources to be able to put anything together. It's just the name of the game. And you have a lot of like really wonderfully talented artists out there who like because they have to work like shitty day jobs, like if they have to work maybe in service injury or something where they're so physically tired, they can't like spend time on their art. It's very tragic to me. It's like, man, like there's so much talent out there that isn't allowed to be used. Yeah, that goes for art, science, anything. You know, there's so much wasted human potential. You know, how many great discoveries have we sent to work in the mines uh, you know how, how many you know breakthroughs of one thing or another or just great i mean you know and that's taking it to the extreme but just great people that we've wrung so much of their lives out of doing just banal shit to make bigger piles of money for people yeah yeah he, he gives the example of scientists and inventors too like a lot of times those guys end up like destitute or you know they get screwed over on a patent all kinds of shitty things can happen to them 
because we're in this system where their work is only viewed through a lens of profit. Yep. Part two of that. Uh, I like this retirement at age 50. It's pretty good. Fuck yes. That's awesome. That's like not quite half your life, but that's a lot of life. Yeah. Maybe it'll be half your life by the time we get here. <laughs> Everyone <laughs> right. is still 100 because yeah. they're eating all their veggies. Uh, so that's a pretty good retirement plan. Again, five hour work day. So, I mean, that's easy. And that's only some of the days. You get tons of days off. He gets into some specifics here. Basically like, all right, let's say you want to do X. How would you go about doing that? So one of his examples is printing, which I thought was interesting as a as an up and coming author. <laughs> yeah. And he was an academic. So he thought a lot about this. Currently, printing is very much about marketing. You know, like you you have to to get a deal. They have to know that it can sell. And and that's why it can be really hard to get certain books published. And, you know, my experiences in the graphic novel world were like, because I have a very cute style, they're like, oh, this is for like young adults. When it's like, I have never seen myself as like making work for kids, but like, that's kind of where they put me because that's what they know to do with marketing. And this is this is a widespread problem in the industry. It's not just graphic novels, but like you have to be in like these kind of niches. It's all about selling. So what will we do if it's not all about selling, basically? I think it's interesting because he's, yeah, at the time he's writing, he's he's got a very big distinction. Uh, this is probably even just more true now. This big distinction between the people doing the writing of, uh, the, doing the writing part, versus the people doing the printing part. The he, it's kind of at that time a manual labor thing to do the printing part. He he was saying like this distinction is in the future not going to be as clearly defined like people will kind of do a little of each and manual labor won't be like looked down on as a shitty job it will be just something that people all like everyone will kind of do yeah so in this example it's like keep in mind this is the 1890s so it's like you learn how to set type and i'm like oh god mm -hmm. <laughs> it's giving me some typography one flashbacks but you know like you learn how to operate the press and how to bind books which like people are very into binding books so like someone's going to be excited about that okay it's a thing all right <laughs> but i mean what was funny is i read this whole section then i was like also yeah there's the internet like how did i forget about that like you just put things on the internet <laughs> right yeah i thought he had a pretty funny quote here about what happens when, you know, all these hoity-toity uh, academics and stuff have to actually publish their own books. And he says, maybe some <laughs> books will be less voluminous, but then more will be set on fewer pages. Maybe fewer <laughs> waste sheets will be published, but the matter will be printed more attentively and more attentively read and more appreciated. I was like, damn, he's kind of throwing some shade at our two-part episode here. Maybe more will be said in less time. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, when you think about if you're producing more things in like these, it's probably higher quality, less volume stuff. So if you want to produce things like like an art book or something, and you're collaborating with people on it, yeah, maybe you only make a few copies. But again, you put them in the library. And so lots of people can go see them. Yeah, uh, that's true. That's true. If you really can't be bothered with it, you can always just do a podcast. It's pretty easy. We managed do to do podcast. it. So. <laughs> you can shit that out every every week. <laughs> so early retirement, five hour workday, plenty of time for you guys to start your own podcast. It's nice. <laughs> or just post your comics on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> or whatever it is other people are into. <laughs> I like it. 
Then he has some more about like, what would the voluntary printing world look like? These all would be kind of organized in like societies, like almost like guilds of like, hey, are you into printing? Like, come hang out with our printing pals. Just kind of self-guided groups. Uh, It reminded me of conversations we've had about how would we do uh, the press journalism Mm. without capitalism, right? Some sort of independent media. And it's kind of like this. I mean, this is what it would basically look like, you know? A bunch of nerds getting together, be like, what's going on? What's important? What do we want to write? How do we want to distribute it? Yeah, sort of thing. Um, It's holistic. So you're not just thinking, how do we come up with the content and make somebody go actually publish it? Because you're doing all the steps, you know? I also liked his example of the dictionary. So there's actually a good movie about this. Is this that one with... uh... It's got Mel Gibson, which sucks. Okay, that's the one I was thinking about. Okay, I saw it on one of the streaming services and didn't watch it. But It's called The Professor and the Madman. Yeah, it does have Mel Gibson and like Sean Penn in it. So like, if you don't like those people, I get it. But it's actually a really good movie and like an interesting story of like the Oxford and English Dictionary. Like it was built through volunteers. The that's guy cool. realized like this is too big of a project. Yeah. And started having people send him words and definitions and then he would just edit them. <laughs> that's cool yeah and everyone has more time to do this you know to pursue their interests and stuff instead of just writing listicles or whatever <laughs> they have you know whatever actual... it is you have to do he gives examples for musicians too like if you want to get a piano like you would spend your time at like a an instrument making guild and like put in some labor there like you know okay i'll like I don't know, carve wood or whatever it is you do to make instruments. (laughs) You know, if you want a telescope, you put in some labor at the observatory. And like, to me, this got pretty, the closest it gets to like a a, a traditional economy because it's like, it's almost like labor notes, but it's like kind of like on good faith. Like, hey, I worked here for a while. Yeah. Can I take this? (laughs) And it's, yeah, it's it's less accounting and more just like uh, human relationships, right? So you've been a part of this this uh, guild that doesn't really have a hierarchy so much as just everyone agrees that, yeah, people, you know, we're cool. We maintain this stuff as our, as things that we all enjoy. Sure, we might let someone just come in here curious, like check things out or whatever, but we kind of have control over these things. Like, you know, we maintain them. Yeah, and I imagine with larger instruments, like like pianos specifically, like, there's just going to be more community pianos too. Like, yeah, for yeah. sure. A piano on every street corner, like right by the <laughs> taco truck. That kind of sucks for me. Cause I do my best playing when nobody is home. <laughs> I don't want people to listen. Yeah. The, I guess he kind of wraps this up by saying, uh, that all these fields, you know, they're freed from capitalism at this point, literature and journalism will cease to be a means of money making and living at the cost of others. He also says uh, letters and science will only take their proper place in the work of human development when freed from all their mercenary bondage. They'll be exclusively cultivated by those that love them and for those that love them. It's like we're doing things for the right reasons now, right? Like we're not writing news stories to sell ads or doing science to support, you know, drug companies, research or whatever. We are, people are interested in it. People are trying to make breakthroughs and that's why it's done. I think we'll even get to more of a 
cure based mindset of things instead of just like pain management. And like, not to say pain management isn't important, but sure. like, I sometimes get freaked out by like, this is a drug company. Like they want you to keep taking their drug. <laughs> yeah, no, you're right. And <laughs> you know? on both counts, like it, we should care for people who are in pain, but also, yeah, be looking for ways to treat the underlying causes. Things like palliative care, like are not getting enough resources because people are like, well, they're already dying. So who cares? Like, mm -hmm. We'll be able to care for people properly. That would be great. You know, the classic example of birth control, like that will be adequately researched. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that'd be great to disentangle basically all research from capitalism. That'd be awesome. And from the state, which is what he talks about in the next section. All right. Section four. Yeah. Basically, your science has to be either backed by someone very rich or the state who wants your science. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah. There's more, you know, in anarchy, there would be more freedom uh, in terms of your academic pursuits. So this is where it gives the example of the Zoological Society of London. Mm -hmm. It's people like sending each other cool animals to study, <laughs> it sounds like. And I'm yeah. like, whoa, okay. And he's like, well, the only problem here is that like, you're, you have to pay a member's fee and like, and saying that instead of doing that, you would pay it in work. You know, you'd be like, I'm going to help take care of this monkey for a while. Yeah. So it's, again, that sort of volunteer group. I mean, you know, it could work. It's a hefty thing to base a society on, but we already have the housing brigades and the, and the food brigades and clothing brigades, so we could have the zoo brigade, too. <laughs> I think then he also kind of gets into patents. Oh, I like this point. Currently, patents are really inhibiting science and, and inventions and all that stuff. Like, because one, you can screw somebody over by just like buying their patent for cheap and then building whatever it is they had the idea for and making the money for yourself. That happens. And then also because we have patent law, like you are limited in what you can build off of it. You're trying to be secretive about your work. Yeah. You're not letting other people use your work. Like that sucks. Right. I'm just, Man, what sort of progress could we make if we <laughs> had all the all the competing firms doing whatever instead of figuring out how to make slightly better versions of the same thing? Oh, yeah. Like figuring out how to just advance past that. I don't know. Like it's, there's a lot of <laughs> wasted effort, it seems like, in competition. Yeah. What if there was just like just one kind of toothpaste <laughs> and it was actually the best toothpaste instead of 100 kinds of toothpastes. Right. And there's just some anxiety built into that, too, on the consumer end of it, too. It's like, yeah, of like, what if this is not good? Yeah. Why am I? Yeah. Which one's the best one? That's the one I want. And then it's like, well, <laughs> depends on who you ask. Yeah. And like, there could still be variety within that, especially in like an anarcho communist situation. Like, yeah, you'll have different versions of things. But, and, and I think this gets back to the idea of, the communalization of ideas like you can't take credit for any one patent because even that patent is built on something else yeah. you know mm -hmm. uses other pre-existing technologies yeah yeah because otherwise it's like well you can't make cars because some cavemen patented the wheel so <laughs> fuck you guys <laughs> yeah overall he kind of discusses how the revolution will generally seem it seems like he thinks it'll make people more inquisitive more scientific you can just kind of stroll down to the local you know to the local biology lab and study some biology. Like, I don't know. It's, it's way more casual, <laughs> way more open. You don't have to devote your entire life to 
just this one narrow field. Like everyone can be a little broader in their interests. Uh, and speaking of broad interests, next we get into section five, which is art. This is my least favorite section, I'm going to tell you. Ooh, okay. I was just going to basically leave it up to you, so I will. I have issues with it. <laughs> <laughs> His first point, he talks about old masters, basically. He's talking about Raphael and shit like that. And he's like, well, their stuff was great because they were making work for the community. And I'm like, bro, they all had patrons. <laughs> yeah. But what he was saying was that what they made to match the tastes of the patrons matched the society's zeitgeist kind of like their community ideals or whatever i guess so i i don't know i thought that was weird i think his example of like the greek statues were a little bit better like granted i don't know a lot about like the greek if they had a patronage system back then but those were very public statues and like they're just like outside so like that could be that's a slightly better argument for me Uh uh-huh and i love how he points out like and now they're just like hidden away in the louvre which like also colonialism like we're gonna gonna yoink your art from you but yeah he's very into communal art which like i am also into communal art but i think he takes it to a point where like it gets a little too like social realism for me yeah we're like what if you're not into that well he's kind of (laughs) gatekeepery about it right he's like this is the way to do good art which is art that supports what everyone likes or you know what everyone's about yeah, he, he calls out artists of like, how can you make art about fishing if you've never been fishing? And I'm like, it's called an imagination, bro. No, but yeah, you have to have the real <laughs> essence of it. You know, that's what makes it for him. I, I don't know. That's that's he would seriously be reading all the little artist bios when he goes to the museum because he wants to know if it's a good picture. <laughs> he wants to know if it's if he likes it. Even if we're talking about written stuff, like what about fiction writers? What about sci-fi or fantasy? Like you're not basing that on anything. Like you might base, you might do a little research for that. Sure, I'm not saying those people don't do research. Mm-hmm. Or like even, and this is where I think his time period trips him up: abstract art, non-representational art entirely. I think he just didn't have that exposure. So like he he is very into representational art, which I am too. Like don't get me, I'm not a fucking non-representational person. It was a weird section for me. I'm like, I don't know, dude. Yeah, I figured you would not enjoy him too much in this regard. I, I didn't. I just thought, again, he was too mm, prescriptive about it. He was too like, this is good art. This is not good art. And it's just like, dude, you are not an artist. Like, chill out. <laughs> you have no yeah. idea what good art is or not. I'm speaking to someone who also doesn't doesn't know what good art is or not. People like what they like. I don't know. Yeah, I think it's just a very limited view of what art is. And I think, again, it, it, he is a little bit handcuffed by his time and probably his own experience. Like, it's just, I, I don't know if this guy even liked art, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Ooh, you know, what would really make him mad is like a blind, noble painting. Oh, he'd hate that. Yeah, because you're like, <laughs> you've never done anything and you've never even never seen anything. experienced it. Yeah. I love personal storytelling. And so... I am someone who does like make art based on their experiences, but I don't, I think he also like categorizes experiences as like more or less useful. Like I think he does a little bit of like labor valuing of like, well, if you're not out there like working hard physically, then you're a piece of shit. And I'm like, what if I can't? He's very pro. Well, yeah, he does. He has a little bit of laborism sort of like workism sort of thing, like kind of glorifying manual labor. 
Yeah. And like, I noticed he doesn't bring up any domestic labor here. He does later, which yeah. like props to him. Yes. But that's not included in his like big, like, what if you made art about cooking or what if you made art about gardening? Like, I think, he, uh, yeah, I, I think that he did leave that out. I don't think he would be opposed to it. I think he, that would be real art for him. But he's also kind of a landscapes guy, it sounds like. I was. I said that. I'm like, this guy's got a boner for landscapes. Like, <laughs> he's like, please paint me a wheat field with men working in it. Yes, that's my shit. Pastoral scenes. That's what he wants. <laughs> Only pastoral art from now on. I will be out of a job. I hate backgrounds. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you can ask my editor. They're always like, what is happening here? <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Kropotkin, failed art critic. <laughs> He, he's the one guy who can fail art appreciation. <laughs> oh, yes. He absolutely would fail that class. For real. Uh, Chapter 10 is next. Agreeable work. Yes. Okay. This is where he gets into domestic work, right? Yeah. Yeah. First of all, he kind of says like, ha ha ha, agreeable work. Very funny, right? Like That's a joke, right? It's an oxymoron. It's totally possible. We've got all this technology, he basically says, like... Everything can be super easy. Our workplaces can be better. We don't have to suffer as much. You'll have, you know, elbow room to do your work. Repugnant tasks will all but disappear, I would add. Like, there's still going to be shit that you don't really want to do, but needs to be done. Okay. Including even domestic work. The same will come to pass as regards domestic work, which today society lays on the shoulders of that dredge of humanity. Woman. Damn. Yeah. But I mean, he wasn't wrong. Like he's writing in the 1890s. I mean, he's writing in the 2020s. You know, it would be (laughs) the same situation, inequality of housework. He calls out the people who want that philanistry life Mm -hmm. for people who don't remember what that is. I actually do. I can give a definition. Do it. It's like when you live together in like a dormitory, basically, and it's it's all like everything is shared communally. Yeah. The big communist dorm rooms. I hate that word. It just sounds too phallic to me. I just, I picture a big penis tower. (laughs) That'd be kind of funny, though. I don't want to live in the penis tower. (laughs) This is where it gets into, yeah, it's normal to want to alternate between public and private life. And that's that's why prison sucks. You don't want to be isolated, but you don't want to be always right beside everyone that would suck it's like i just want to poop in my own house alone please <laughs> that's what he's getting at he had ibs <laughs> oh, cats moving okay we're good and i love that he he calls out a lot of socialists of of kind of either brushing over this topic as a whole being like yeah we don't really need to talk about it or you know the kind of ones that are just like well if we could just take care of it himself and it's like do you mean herself? Because it's probably your wife doing that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Ugh, like, fuck these guys. They they just they just think it's so beneath them that they don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah. not uh it's not important enough. He says, like, why has women's work never been of any account? Because those who want to emancipate mankind have not included women in their dream of emancipation and consider it beneath their superior masculine dignity to think of those kitchen arrangements, which they have laid on the soldiers of that drudge woman. These are the same men though. Like, have you seen that tweet going around of the guy who was asked to boil eggs and he like cracked the eggs in a pot? Oh, no. (laughs) These are those same men who think it's beneath (laughs) them, but would literally die if like all the women in their lives left. (laughs) 
<laughs> wow. Yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah. Horrifying. Uh, how do we do this? Uh, we got to like draw up a list, right? And say, okay, well, these are, this, these are all the chores and then we'll divide them equally between the men and the women. No. Okay. All right. What's a better idea? Come on. You can't just shoot my, down my idea. You got to come up with a better one. <laughs> well, his idea is big machines, basically. He's like, hey, technology, once again. And I'm like, well, yeah, we already have all these machines, first of all. He's like getting really horny for the idea of a dishwasher. And it's like, yeah, we have that. <laughs> well, I think he mentions like they, they do have them already, but they're like very limited and very expensive. Um, and he's kind of like, yeah, let's just do that. But like for industrially. <laughs> Take your dishes down to the dishwasher house, right? Or have, you could have, okay, so you could have dishwashing brigades come around and collect your dishes in these big trays, right? And take them down <laughs> to the dishwashing station and take them back. You could have this delivered. That you cracks know? me up. It's like room service almost. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's basically describing what if we all have room service? Yeah. Yeah. And I think you could still have, like we've talked before about cleaning brigades, that being more valued work in general, because it's a lot of fucking work. Like we've all been there when you're like, holy yeah. shit, my house is a disaster zone. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think having that more as a valued work, you'll also have like more time to take care of your shit if you need to. Mm -hmm. You will also, if you're on the cleaning brigades, this is not like your life's vocation unless you want it to be like do that for like a year a month and then do something else, you know? Even if you're on the cleaning brigade, you'd only be for like, what, four hours a day and then you're done? Like, you can go chill? So, I, I this, it was kind of a cool little description here, but mostly, I guess, I appreciated that he was in the first place discussing this. Obviously, you get to like your your details and it's like, okay, well, these details work for the 1890s, whatever, maybe. <laughs> and maybe it'll look different, but it's just cool to think about, like, we do need to... Uh, include this we do this is it does need to be a part of our societal plans uh, for the revolution yeah because i mean even when you like jokingly made the comment of dividing chores between men and women it's like even within like our own households like that is not how that works like yeah i am very bad at some chores and kyle's he's good at pretty much all chores but <laughs> <laughs> we had a mother who spoiled us okay and <laughs> we weren't we did not have to do chores so, you know, it is very much like needs based, like, hey, I don't have time for this. Can you handle this for me? Sure. Like it is it is it is free agreement in this marriage. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think in the last bit, he gets into basically white feminism. Mm, yeah. Because he says even women who are like emancipated, the ones who make it out of drudgery, who are, you know, going to university, going to parliament, whatever, they are then throwing their work onto another woman. And you definitely see that now, like people hiring like nannies and maids and all these people to do their domestic work for them. Yeah. People who are desperate enough to be exploited in that way, you know? And he says, you know, yeah, we can't just say, okay, well, women can go and have equal access to the capitalist workplace. There's got to be a new society full gender equality in practice everywhere, not just in law, but where no one is enslaved to, you know, they're relegated to housework. It's very tempting to be like, well, no one's going to want to do that work. But it's like, again, those conditions are going to be way better. And like, if we're not so focused on profit, 
it's going to be a more comfortable environment. It's going to be for less time. It's going to be made easier because we'll actually be like making technology that is useful for large scale work like that. Like, yeah, it's going to be way easier. Yeah, I mean, I had four extra hours a day. I could put like one or half of one toward housework a day. You know, <laughs> that's not so bad. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. I, I definitely appreciate this section for sure. Yes. I liked this section as much as I hated the last section. all right so he redeemed himself yes uh next up we mentioned it just a little bit ago chapter 11 free agreement this is the kind of basis for this society of saying like hey we know government sucks they're not actually helping people as much as they pretend to and as much as the press pretends that they're doing that like and he gives the examples of like here Corporations have found ways to work together that don't involve like laws too much. And the idea that free agreement is actually what we want to be doing. It's it's not based on like, hey, I'm going to fucking sue you or I'm going to stab you if you don't do this. It's it's like, do this or, or I, I don't want to work with you anymore. Yeah. And he's, he's also countering the argument, you know, we've come to believe that man would tear his fellow man to pieces <laughs> like a wild beast. The day the police took his eye off him. <laughs> oh, my God. And he's like, uh, like no. No. Here's actually what we would do. Yeah. One thing that he mentions here, he mentions it in a few other places, too, is the idea that only, like, the rich's history is recorded. I think we mm. talked about that last episode, too. Yeah. I really like this point because I'm someone who's very into, like, pop history. So things like food and clothing and, like, yeah. more everyday things. That's your that's your deal. That is my deal. <laughs> I know a lot about like history of meals and stuff like that. But even those absolutely suffer from the same bias, especially the further you go back in history. I read a book called Medieval Pets recently. It was all about like monks and fancy ladies. <laughs> because yeah, those are the only ones we have evidence of as far as their pets and things. Because we rely so much on the written record and because so much of history was largely illiterate. And it really bothered me because the book even kind of, I mean, it admits this up front, but it it distinguished between pets, like a lap dog versus like a dog you use for hunting. And I'm like, I'm sure they also liked those dogs. I'm sure it's not just like, fuck you. You're you're just a farm animal. Like, Uh I'm sure even the farm animals, like I bet they named and liked their farm animals too. Yep. (laughs) As someone who plays a lot of Stardew Valley. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't know how they came to making that distinction as the authors in the modern day. But if you think back to, you know, when people are writing those histories, you know, of their contemporaries, like back then, you know, the mm-hmm. monks or whatever, or whoever's writing about like, uh, or the, the nobles writing in their diaries, they're writing about their own experiences or the experience of people in their class. They don't even, they don't have any sort of interest no. in the regular people out in the streets or whatever, or they you know, cause they could, there's nothing stopping them, especially, you know. These nobles, they don't have a real job. Like, they could just go walking around like, hey, commoner, tell me about your, about your dog. dog here. Yeah, People love you know? talking about their pets. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's just this, you know, classism. I mean, it just runs through the entirety of, of history. Yeah, yeah. And it, it happens in all these sectors of it. Yeah, from pets to food. Like, it, it gets a little better. Like, once you get to, like, the 20th century, like, there's more interest in, I think, kind of pop culture. Yeah, that's something I have always found frustrating. Of like, no, I want to know what like regular people did. Very hard to do in history. Yep. <laughs> I also love the example he gives on. He so he starts getting into railways, right? Mm-hmm. 
but he gives an example of a shitty railway with Tsar Nicholas. Oh, <laughs> who's just like, uh, yeah, we're building the railroad, right? So it's going to be a straight line. <laughs> yeah, and it ended up being like super expensive and shitty because it's like, yeah, there's shit in the way, dude. Like we can't just do that. He had never played City Skylines. Doesn't work that way. <laughs> He's never played SimCity, any of it. So yeah, his example with railways is is the idea of like, yeah, obviously you can't trust the state to do it because you have idiots like this guy being like, let's do it this way, and they have no experience with it. Mm-hmm. And he gives a weirdly full, not full-throated, but he gives a weird endorsement for railway companies. And I, I thought this was kind of gross. <laughs> <laughs> so it is, I think that he, he kind of sets us up here because he'll, he'll explain himself a little bit later. Uh, but as far as his uh, thing about like railways and stuff developing via free agreement, this kind of jars with our popular perception in the United States, at least, of railways as very monopolistic. Yeah, maybe this is just his European perspective kind of coloring this. And in, in, in Europe, you still, I mean, they were, they were still developed by corporations of different sorts that were chartered by governments and stuff. So there was government involvement with varying degrees there in Europe as well and in the different countries, uh, as well as in the United States. Like when we think about it, we think of the railroad titans, the robber barons and stuff. And that actually comes a bit later. We started out uh, with quite small local, very local railroads. Yeah, like you would go settle a new town. Like, and then you'd build your own like little railway system and, and try to connect it. And then once companies came in, like they would build what they thought was a more efficient rail line and often like those towns would get cut off. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you had, you know, you had government chartering or at least giving their permission, sometimes investing huge amounts. So, you know, like the B&O Railroad from Monopoly. Mm-hmm. That was the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. Uh, that was approved of and partially owned by the state of Maryland and the city of Baltimore. Ah. Uh, so, it, you know, th- this was not 100 percent, you know, an anarchist free agreement style thing. I mean, this, <laughs> this had government involvement from day one. Uh, like we said later, you had the, the robber barons, Jay Gould, Cornelius Vanderbilt. Later, you'll have J.P. Morgan. These guys start monopolizing and, and putting together railroad empires and stuff. So I think that it is you know, you're right that it is kind of a, a, a gross or a weird example for us to use, given that it involves both corporations and governments. But what he what he what he emits here is if companies owning railways have been able to agree, I mean if these assholes can do it, well, you know, why shouldn't you know, when railway workers take over for themselves and are running this, you know, for transportation purposes rather than for profit, why can't they figure out how to agree too? Yeah, I think my issue with it, especially from an American's perspective, is like it was a bloody process, too, in terms of exploitation, like a bunch of people fucking died building it, particularly like Chinese railroad workers. And yeah. wasn't it in the East like it was Irish people who built them? Uh, all, all over. You had Irish workers. You had Chinese workers. You had, Yeah, you had racial violence in that regards. Uh, you eventually they end up passing the Chinese Exclusion Act. Uh, at the at, with the support of several labor unions uh, that were wanting to protect their workers from that, so you're pitting the working class against it, itself because of because using race, you know. 
And you also had uh, labor violence. I mean, you had strikes. The Pullman strike was a railroad strike. Oh, that's right. Uh, so you had all these, you know, the, the federal government calling out troops to to back up the railway companies and stuff. So, yeah, it was definitely a violent process. And I don't think he's necessarily denying that, but he's saying that if you look within this bad example of bad people doing bad things, there is the kernel of working together that when you take out the rest of the framework, when you no longer have capitalism and stuff, that free agreement part, there's no reason why we can't still have that. The violence has already been done. So we don't have to, you know, we can't go back and erase the violence. It's already there. Now that it's happened, um, we can use this thing that was wrought with blood for good now. <laughs> he is good about that, like taking a capitalist example and being like, this is the good part. Like they did a good job at this. We can do that. Or, and I think this example is kind of helped by the fact that it does have both companies in the state because it's like, well, you the state didn't help. <laughs> in fact, you know, they're on the side of the companies. Like they they were colluding with them in this way. So it's not like... It's not like you could look at the situation and be like, well, they needed to have more state power. It's like they, they have the state power, guys. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Basically, like, if even assholes who want, who are competing with each other and want to make the most profit or whatever, who would love to destroy their enemies can do this, then we should be able to do this. Yeah. Okay. And they do it with state backing. You know, the state is helping them, like you said. Obviously, when we do it, we're going to be doing it with just the people and we're not going to have those exploitative elements i liked how he starts section two saying basically once you take away the diametrically opposed interest of regular people basically like once you take away that fight for survival or profit Mm -hmm. that will necessarily lead to a better situation for everybody yeah 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 out of where once we're out of capitalism uh, we won't have so many of these problems. He's because he's he's saying again, right? Like I used defective examples because that's what we've got. Yeah, like free agreement will happen because you won't have people fighting each other. Yeah, you won't have people fighting each other, and you won't have the state backing them up with violence, backing up their monopolies, doing all this bullshit. Yeah, yeah, and like they even have <laughs> some more SpongeBob voice of. of the railroad companies oppress people. Well, the state has to intervene to protect them. And it's like, that. when has that happened ever? <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like, they're on their side. They're there because of the state. <laughs> the state chartered them. The state backs up their monopoly. The state sends in troops when they, you know, when their workers get upset. Like, come on. <laughs> yeah, this, this section kind of helped me with that first section of being like so horny for railroads. I was like, are you sure? Like, okay. He's, Don't get me wrong. They're assholes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then he has this confusing section later. Is that the part? Yes, yes. This the last few paragraphs of this section, I was like, I don't, I don't know what's going on here. So uh, here he starts talking about the government backing and the monopolization stuff we mentioned, and saying how in the U.S. Uh, the big railway companies get government subsidies and they get land grants that empower them to dominate competing railway lines, the smaller. You know, the mom and pop railways. <laughs> uh, and they do that because they, they can, you know, they can cover their whatever losses they entail. They can cover that with government money that those smaller outfits aren't getting. So this is how they grow their monopolies into world bestriding behemoths. But nevertheless, there's, he says that there's the, there are syndicates 
they're kind of alliances of smaller railway companies that are able to hold out, uh, that are able to kind of resist being swallowed up because they've teamed up together. And this, we actually did see this uh, happen kind of all over. Uh, Nowadays, nearly half of America's economic activity is small businesses, like 44% small business. So you still see, you know, capitalism has this tendency toward monopoly. But why then he's kind of he's saying like, okay, well, so why do we still see small businesses and the examples of railroads or whatever? Why do they exist if monopoly, right? Well, the way they exist is because they are working together. They're syndicating in the example of railroads. And so he's again saying like there is a possibility of or he's, he's again using like a kind of shitty example to say, yeah, but if we were working together as people and doing this free agreement thing that even the capitalists can figure out, then, you know, we, we could we could make some good things happen. So this kind of reminds me of our small business episode, like when we talk about the reasons people are into small businesses, like, Mm -hmm. oh, it's more local, you're supporting your community, things like that. And it's like, yeah, we could do that with like anarcho-communism too. Yes. Uh Okay, cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's saying, so yeah, you like the local, you like the personal treatment and all that sort of stuff. Well, that's what this is. (laughs) I like that too. Yeah, let's let's do it. (laughs) Same, but with like food and healthcare. (laughs) Yes. Not for profit. Not for profit. All right. Section three. We get into like regulating traffic here. (laughs) So. Yeah. Someone's got to be the policeman who's going to, you know, make sure that everybody's not an asshole. Yeah. What if someone blocks the canal with their boat or, you know, refuses to let other trains on the railways or whatever it is? He basically says. He kind of just says, like, okay, we won't let them on their railway again. Like, they'll get kicked out of the guild. (laughs) Yeah. And so this depends, again, on that free association, kind of like syndicates or guilds. Uh, Everybody who's using the railways or the canals or what have you, the airports, they're going to be in the guild or part of it or have a relationship with them such that if they fuck up too bad and too often, they're just going to be banned, you know? Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. Like... And I think when people think of just the idea of anarchy, it is like, oh, no rules. It's like, there's still rules. They're just not like, we're going to shoot you if you fuck this up. We're just gonna, not going to hang out with you if you don't fuck this yeah, up. Yeah, we're not calling up. the cops. Yeah, you know? we're just going to be like, okay, leave. Please leave. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, ultimately, yeah, people can raise the objection. Well, what if they don't want to leave? I mean, yeah, ultimately, you'll have to impose your will. There will, you know, there can be conflict. We're not saying that. But it's not going to be an institution dedicated to to murdering people. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think there becomes less incentive to be an asshole because it's like, well, you also need this thing. And you also like you don't want to be known as the asshole in the community who and then like people don't want to hang out with you. There's more relying on each other. Yeah, more relying on each other, less of an adversarial like situation in the first place. So you're not going into into whatever, you know, interpersonal conflict, which can happen. But you're not going into that thinking, oh, this guy's like fundamentally against me, which is how so much of it happens nowadays. Because, yeah, because so many people are trying to screw you over because that's like the name of the game (laughs) right now. More example times. He gives the English Lifeboat Association a shout out. Yeah, this seems to be the Royal National Lifeboat Institution is what it's actually called. Oh, but, okay, fancy. Uh, you know. But it's like a, it's like he describes a volunteer organization. 
I think the key to this organization, though, is that it is kind of expert-led, like the worker is the expert. Even if some lord is paying for the lifeboat to be built, he lets the, the local fishermen and sailors decide, like, what kind of boat, where do you want to place it, you know, what do you need for it? Because otherwise, like, why the fuck would this guy know, like, what anything about boats? <laughs> uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> be like, I want a pretty boat? Like, I, I don't know. <laughs> talks about that, talks about the Red Cross. Uh, And with both of these, he kind of admits they're not perfect examples. He says it's a glimpse of what free agreement has in store for us in the future when there will be no more state. Yeah, yeah. And I like the Red Cross example, because if you do abstract it, like, oh, what if with war, we like send people to heal everybody? And it's like volunteers from everywhere. And it's like, that sounds like a bad idea. But like, it worked out okay. They have their problems now. (laughs) Well, sure. But there's a lot of objections you could easily raise at the time, like, where or why would people volunteer to go i mean like if they want to volunteer to help people then why do we have a war <laughs> but yeah yeah or like what if what if they discriminate against the other side they don't treat them things like that and it's like that's just like not what happened this section where he's talking about that and with the railway examples before and everything you know there's just always so many people out there who are going to say you know anytime anyone tries to make the world better it's socialism, communism, anarchism, whatever, they're going to say, like, they're being a realist. They know human nature, and it doesn't work that way. You know, like a tech bro or a liberal or a Democrat or what have you, they're going to be like, this is a nice idea on paper, but it could never work, you know, because of how people are shitty, and they'll just make the worst of every situation. And Kropotkin's, like, just the opposite of that, man. He, he's... Because I... And I don't know, and we do this sometimes, we like to say that, you know, in capitalism, it's a lake and you've got a boot in the lake and when you take it out, the boot's wet, so people are still going to be shitty. You know, we kind of have that mindset, that part of us too, but Kropotkin, he's such an optimist about that. He's, he's even in that shitty situation, he's like, yeah, but look, even with everything being so bad, people do have like this desire to do better. Yeah, yeah, I do really appreciate that distinction between, yeah, the wet boot and just like, yeah, we could do this. We are doing this right now in these examples, and we could improve on those examples. We could do this tomorrow, basically. Yeah, we could do this tomorrow. I guess for me, it's like, because we're doing it now despite a crushing burden. If we lift that, how much more could we do? Yes, and I think he absolutely admits like, yeah, there's going to be some inequality. It's going to get messy, but like, we'll get there. Yes, yeah. Despite all the objections, which is <laughs> our next 12. chapter. <laughs> I love this section. He starts out like, damn, we're not even going to address those like authoritarian assholes. Like, that's going to fail. Like, sick burn for the Marxist Leninists among uh, us. Yeah, gratuitous <laughs> fuck you to them. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, it just, just says no. Just says uh, we're not even going to address it. It's so stupid. <laughs> Which, okay, but then he does address it. He does, absolutely. He says, civilized nations have suffered too much in the long, hard struggle for the emancipation of the individual to disown their past work and to tolerate a government that would make itself felt in the smallest details of a citizen's life. And I don't know. I thought it was interesting because, like, maybe. I mean, like, it's possible (laughs) people would be like, no, fuck that. I don't know, like, it seems that when revolutions have popped off and have been Marxist-Leninist and have been, like, 
you know, doing vanguard party shit and then establishing a dictatorship of the proletariat worker state or something close to it, whatever, you know, this transitional state that he doesn't like. Seems like they think that's a better alternative to capitalism. And maybe they would also be down for an, uh, another alternative of anarcho-communism from day one. But I don't know. I, I, uh, it seems, I know he's not saying this, but uh, I'm fine with how, again, we've said this before, like I'm fine with however it pops off. Like, <laughs> whichever one we want to do, let's do it. <laughs> it's not like a worse choice than the one you have now. Like, like staying it's, with it's capitalism sucks way, worse. Well, it could be. Yeah, he, he's saying it's bad in a different way. Yeah, I would say you would, uh, you know, even from the anarcho-communist perspective, you should think of it as tiers as like capitalism, worst tier. It sucks. <laughs> Bottom tier. You know, uh, then you, state socialism, not great, but, uh, you know, it's not as bad, I would argue, even from the anarcho-communist perspective. And then, you know, let's do better, though. Let's instead do this. Yeah, he's a little unfairly harsh with them. And I don't know, I, I understand a little bit. Just I think he's so focused on being anti-authoritarian that, like, sometimes it makes sense. Like, I, I was just watching a documentary where they were talking about Pol Pot. And I was like, yeah, that's a bad one. Like, don't do that. <laughs> you know, like, you can definitely take it too far. And mm-hmm. I think he's given lots of examples of where being so law-oriented, rules-oriented, fairness-oriented can fuck you over. Yeah, and he's also against specifically like an authoritarian socialism that's like uh, divorced from the people. It's from above. It's kind of harkens back to that parliamentary stuff he was talking before. And I had a name on the tip of my tongue last episode that I couldn't think of and just went with like movement or something. Uh, but it was the, the Blankiists. Blanky, he was this guy who was like... Uh, who wanted to have like a secret sect of socialist uh, revolutionaries that would like do a coup basically and take over the government and then like just do socialism from the government until the people were ready to like take over. I don't love that. Uh, and that was blank key. And that's what it reminds me of when he's saying like these authoritarian communists and stuff like that's this uh, socialism from above sort of thing. There is a way to do it. If you have enough of a mass movement where it is more like bottom up. Yeah. But anyway, back to the haters. Haters going to hate. Haters going to hate. Our first hater is that classic guy. Nobody's going to want to work. <laughs> yep. I like this because he is, he just, he's just like, man, people say this every time. You know, every time you want to make work less shitty for people, People start complaining. It's like, well, nothing's going to get done now. You know, you want to abolish slavery? Well, nothing's going to get done. You know, you want to abolish serfdom? Nothing's going to get done, you know? And he's like, "Uh, actually, no. We're pretty good at getting stuff done. (laughs) (laughs) And so he kind of argues that without wage labor, without capitalism, without compulsion of any kind, uh, people will actually work best when they're not, you know, beholden to being abused by some overlord. I really love his little, like, twist example. Moreover, who but economists taught us that if a wage earner's work is but indifferent, an intense and productive work is only attained from a man who sees his wealth increase in proportion to his efforts. All hymns sung in honor of private property can be reduced to this axiom. The idea of, like... (laughs) capitalists are so hardworking. That's why they make so much money and they're so yeah. good at it. So if you follow that logic, 
they admit the only way to be quote unquote hardworking is to profit from your own work. <laughs> so yeah. the only way to actually make everyone be productive is to get rid of wages. Yes. It's to make it to where they not profit, but benefit from their own work. A society benefits from it rather than, you know, doing this so that some other asshole can make tons of money. Yeah. You know? That little paragraph blew my mind. <laughs> yeah. And that's a perfect encapsulation of it. Um, he gets a little bit though, I think idealistic about work. Like he mm. talks about like a festival of labor and like a little flowery again, you know, very horny for landscapes and, and social realism stuff. Like he's just like, Oh, we're all going to be so excited to work. And I do think, yeah, it's going to be way more pleasant. Yeah. And for him, definitely the distinction is all about the conditions of the social relations of your labor, right? So like you are not, again, you're not toiling for somebody else. He says the when where a hireling produces bare necessities with difficulty, a free worker who sees ease and luxury increasing for them and for others in proportion to their efforts, uh, spends infinitely far more energy and intelligence and obtains first class products in far greater abundance. So like you're just going to be sense. better at fucking working and like you're going to be more chill, more relaxed, more able to enjoy the parts of your job that you enjoy like because everybody does you know hate parts of your job yeah no matter how much you quote unquote love your job like there's gonna be some part you don't like but if you do have a job that you you know sort of like at all there are parts that you kind of enjoy you know Mm -hmm. and he's saying like if you change that relationship you're no longer working for an employer but you're working for yourself and for society then you're gonna get to enjoy those parts more and flowery part aside, I think that that's probably true. I think that, yeah, because you are directly benefiting yourself and your community, your family, your friends. Like, I thought this was funny, too. He t- points out that, like, businesses already understand that well-being is like a stimulant to work. Mm-hmm. And and you see companies all the time, like, taking credit for this. Like, oh, we realize workers like like this, <sighs> so we gave them a gym or whatever. You know, yeah. like. We gave them a little meditation box. <laughs> <laughs> exactly like oh we offer free yoga now and like they they try to twist that to be like happy workers are productive workers but also like please keep working <laughs> <laughs> yeah emphasis on the productive and the work <laughs> and, and you see that absolutely with wellness culture like it has taken this turn from like you know take care of yourself because you're worth taking care of to take care of yourself so you can work more yeah it's, it's disgusting <laughs> Next section, the main complaint here or the main, uh, the hater quote is people are lazy and they don't want to work shitty jobs. <laughs> he really brings up the point of like all work already depends on manual labor. Like, and, and the reason people avoid manual labor is because the conditions are terrible. The wage is shitty. Your body is going to get destroyed. There's also a social stigma to it. And like, there's this huge ball of shit involved in it. And you have to do that, like, as your vocation. That, that's, that's you. That's your you full-time have to do thing. That. Often you have multiples of those jobs because you can't afford rent on just one of those jobs. What if none of those conditions were there? What if, like, your conditions are nice? What if, like, you're already taken care of physically? Like, your health is fine because, like, again, your conditions are better. There's no stigma. Like, what if we took all that away? Cha- yeah, again, change the conditions, the social relations, and he says, when you, when the revolution does that and abolishes wages and all this, 
then you won't have this distinction too between manual labor as one thing and brain work as a different thing. If you don't have that distinction, and this was mentioned in like the printing press versus author sort of thing, you don't have this distinction, then people are like, ah, fuck, I got to do this, you know, manual labor part. It's like, this is just part of your task, part of the vocation that you have, you know? And if you want to get anything done, it's something that you have to do. And you're not like it less for it. Like everybody does it. It's good and productive, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And like, Currently, if even if you personally have made it to the point where you don't do manual labor, like it's still being done, you just you just don't see it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Another critique that he raises is the classic defense of capitalism is the most efficient system. <laughs> and again, he already has like admitted like it's a it's it did okay at what it was supposed to do, but it's not the most efficient system like for actually taking care of people. Yeah, again, it does increase the productive forces, but like it's not good at providing for people's needs. Uh, You know, you've got people destroying their bodies to make bullshit that people have to be like advertised to to convince to consume in the first place. You got, you know, people begging in the streets. That's not a bug of the system. It's a feature of the system. The you've, you've got a global proletariat that, you know, is 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 forced by the Imperial Corps to do all of its manual labor, you know, and, and prostrate itself before them. I mean, capitalism is also as shitty as it can be to its workers. They, you know, they realize, hey, you know, hard work doesn't get me anywhere. I'm going to do as little as I can. I mean, like, it's that's a super inefficient, destructive, inhumane system that's only more advanced because of technological advances, he kind of says, you know. You bring up the idea of like shoddy pay, shoddy work. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I liked this section. It's like, this is a thing basically. And it's like, oh, for sure it is. Like a pro tip, like never turn things in early. Just don't do it. <laughs> yeah. The reward for finishing your work early is, early is more work, you know? Yeah. yeah. And he, he puts it in here basically like, don't do as much as you can because that's going to be expected of you in the future, basically. And I think the reason we resist that is because one, yeah, we have these shitty conditions. We're not getting paid enough. Like, and even just idea of like, you're selling your time. And so it's like, yeah. why would I do that for another person <laughs> or for someone who's benefiting from this way more than I am? Yeah. And it's not just about being selfish. It's about, it's, well, you're not just not benefiting from it. You're act- you're working to to benefit the person who is like antagonistic <laughs> to you. <laughs> yeah. Like the person who is ripping you off, the person who's exploiting you. Like it'd be different just to like help a stranger. That would be better than Oh, for sure, <laughs> for sure. The person who you're employed by, like, you know, that person as a class and as a specific person is like opposed to you. <laughs> You do this thing for someone, and instead of them being like, hey, thanks for doing that thing so quickly, they're like, okay, here's more things to do. And you're like, well, fuck you. Yeah. That's that's not cool at all. You know, if you come into work early, and you leave late, and you work on weekends, and you work hard every day, and you do as much as you can, your boss can afford one day to go on a nice vacation. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, it sucks. <laughs> yeah, so he's just saying work sucks. <laughs> work sucks, guys. I don't know if you knew that. Unless it's a cool festival of work. <laughs> yeah, but... Work under capitalism, when people say it's the most efficient system, it's good at producing things, but the relations and how it actually meets human needs is shitty. How it gets distributed, I think. 
Yes. Yeah. Well, not just that, but like also what we produce. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Section three. This is when they're like, now somebody out there is going to not want to work. Like there's going to be one guy who's just like, no, I'm being lazy. And so what we need to do, because there is at least one person doing this, I mean, we need to bring to bear the entire force of (laughs) the whole way we design our society needs to be focused on stopping this one person from doing this thing, right? I mean, we can't let them get away with it. Oh, my God. This just, It's such a myopic view. It, it is such a throw the baby out with the bathwater situation. <laughs> yeah, and it's at the heart of so much bullshit in our government. I mean, if you think about, like, any sort of social spending, any sort of welfare programs or unemployment programs or whatever, so much of it is predicated on making sure that nobody can get a dollar that they didn't deserve. Yep, yep, yep. Even if that means a lot of people don't get dollars that they do deserve. Yeah. This quote really sums it up here. To avoid a possible evil, you have to resort to means which in themselves are a greater evil and become the source (laughs) of the same abuses that you wish to remedy. I mean, he brings this up in the last sections, too, of like people get so obsessed with fairness that they end up like Uh fucking hanging people and shooting people and like all the shit they were rebelling against. Yeah. And it's, you know, and people put this sort of argument forth in all sorts of ways, you know, uh, when you start talking about the prison industrial complex and how you want to, you know, abolish prisons and things. He's like, you know, well, what you want murders and rapists running around, you know, (laughs) like you can't just have that. Uh, It's like, well, you do. They're just called cops. Yeah. (laughs) He's he's like, you are resorting to just as bad methods as the people you're trying to stop. In this example, he's really just talking about shirking work, like being lazy because you realize that working is not going to benefit you. It's going to benefit some person who's trying to exploit you. Right, which makes just as logical sense. If you take away that whole thing that makes it make sense, people aren't going to shirk as much work. Maybe some people are still going to be lazy. Like, I'm pretty lazy, I'm a little to be bit honest. lazy. But he's like, we shouldn't put parts of, of what made it bad in the first place, put those in place to try to stop people from doing this behavior. Like, it's just going to lead to more of that. But it's, his solution to this is really just like, yeah, just like tell these fuckers to go away. Like if someone shows up all the time and like does a bad job at work and on purpose, you know, like is is lazy, doesn't do work. Just like, hey, go hang out with somebody else. Like, I don't want to hang out with you. <laughs> the tag along comrade, you know, <laughs> just here eats all the food, does not help with anything like is just a dick. Like, I, I, I really do think. He is hoping for a big social change of like, yeah, work is going to be valued, not in like a weird Protestant, that kind of tradition. I think it's going to be like... Work will set you free. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Not like that. But I I think, yeah, I think generosity is going to be more valued and and things like that where it's like, yeah, you should try to take care of people because it's the right thing to do. And if you have someone who refuses to do that, it's like, fuck you, you suck. Yeah, so it kind of, you're saying, kind of relies on, like, the new anarcho-communist person sort of thing. I think a little bit, yeah. Maybe so. That's a little idealistic, but... I I, I kind of mentally titled this section, The Nature of Laziness. Mm, Okay, that's a good title for it. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) First, he tackles, are the bourgeoisie lazy? And he kind of, like, goes in a few different directions. Like, yeah, some of them probably are. You know, they give themselves the easiest tasks, like... They're chilling. It's fine. But if we're in a society where like, yeah, everyone should work on everything, you 
put that fancy man for one day in the sewers, he's like, let's make the sewers better, guys. I don't want to work there. <laughs> right. There's like all of a sudden 20 different like pieces of equipment to keep your all parts of you away from making any contact with. Everyone has a hazmat suit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, but this makes sense, you know, and he even says like the bourgeoisie, even in their lazy jobs, like they still do some stuff. They still apply themselves somewhat. Yeah. There are people who apply themselves and like are good at their jobs. There's also like everyone knows the busybody in the office who like really enjoys being busy. And like, even if they're kind of making up work for themselves that in the end of the day is like not that useful. Like mm-hmm. what if that could be redirected to something useful? Like I personally think about that all the fucking time, like being in like a technology sector, I'm like, wow, what if we like were doing this for like a, a communal voting system where like yeah. it was really easy to decide on like local ordinances because it's just an app. <laughs> yep, or like medical records yes. that we could actually transfer between, you know, different uh, departments or whatever. Yeah, like, so there's still going to be a need for those kinds of jobs. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know, I, I struggle with that, though, because I, I I do think people should still have a mix of manual and, like, I guess, l- mental labor. Well, mo- yeah, I mean, again, and most people, you know, uh, obviously people have different abilities and stuff, and that's fine. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Which he doesn't really address, but... Um, he doesn't. He does not. In, you know, in general, to the extent people are capable to, you know, yeah, there they would be... It would be good to have a mix of that just to make mm, pursuits more holistic, I guess, like, or more unified, like, make it to where there's less of putting stuff, putting de- your own demands on someone else. I yes. Uh, yeah, that was my concern. It's like, I don't, I don't want there to be a stigma still. I don't want to be like, well, I worked hard enough and educated myself, so I get to like work on the, the voting app while you have to go work in the fields. Yeah, yeah. Shouldn't so. be any of that. Shouldn't be any of like, uh, I wrote this book, you know, three months ago. Why isn't it printed yet? You know, like expectations placed. Like, I don't know. Everything should be tied in closer together. I mean, I think they do this in The Dispossessed, where, like, they are kind of judgy when someone never takes a fieldwork position. They're like, oh, that guy, like, only works in the office. Like, what a weirdo. Yeah, but then again, you know, you can. There's a social judgment, but, like, mm, you know. and <laughs> You'll be less popular. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's not utopian in that way, then, because it does have its own kind of, like, downsides or drawbacks you know i mean that that's what the dispossessed was about saying like our social pressures are so rigid that we they kind of accidentally made authoritarianism again yeah <laughs> <laughs> whoops uh, it all ties together oh uh, yeah i love that book i love the second half of the section where he gets into like why do we categorize people as lazy he says the child reputed lazy at school is often the one which does not understand what he is badly taught and it's like yeah, like he gets into all these examples of, you know, is it because that kid is having a bad time at home? They're not getting enough to eat. They're poor. They have a mental illness. They have ADHD. It could be like anything. Yeah, including, you know, low expectations or mm-hmm. you know, being able to kind of get away with being lazy and still kind of coasting around. So it's not 100% just bad things that they would oh really strive to work hard if they could kids do need to also just be trained to like uh, achieve to their potential like to actually try at stuff like it's you know they it's not just they're just going to bloom on their own if you take away their material conditions like you their material like hardships you know they also need to be like pushed that's part of teaching is like pushing them to do more 
Definitely. And he gets into kind of like pedagogy here. If like, what if someone's just not interested in the subject or they need it explained in a different way? What if you teach math on nature walks or whatever it is you're doing, like getting them out of the classroom and like really engaging with them in, in like holistic ways? Yeah, I thought that whole discussion was super cool. Yeah, I, I want I kind of want to write a book on that now. <laughs> I know he's dead, <laughs> well, but reminded me of the whole like uh, education episode we did about you know i mean it'd be less grade centered you know obviously just more freedom you know more more autonomy and more variety as he's talking about yeah definitely like and and even like looking at teachers themselves like he calls out like you know what if they were just badly taught this thing like you have people who are in teaching like and they don't actually want to be there like it's that's absolutely a thing too and like you actually get people who are passionate about these subjects and can teach. Like, that would be awesome. <laughs> uh, that's, yeah, that's the sad truth about the profession is in a lot of situations, it ends up being kind of a fallback. Because it has that stigma. Yeah, and it's not always a bad thing to, you know, I, I don't like to try to gatekeep the teaching profession and say, oh, no. you have to come in here, you know, trying to martyr yourself for the kids or anything like that there's plenty of good teachers who end up in teaching, you know, just kind of, it just happened to them. And then they're like, it turns out they're good at it or whatever. But, you know, we don't want to have a system where anyone's compelled to take up, a take up a profession just to survive in the first place, you know? So, yeah, I like his quote here where he says, someone said the dirt is matter in the wrong place. I love that. <laughs> It's just the way you look at it. And he says the same definition applies to the nine-tenths of those called lazy. They are people gone astray in a direction that does not answer to their temperament nor their capacities. They were lazy as long as they had not found the right path and afterwards laborious to excess. Absolutely. Like like you were talking about like those kids with the expectations placed on them. If that's like the society you grew up in like you you don't have those opportunities to pursue something that you could be really fucking good at if your school's music program gets cut and you never picked up an instrument like how many virtuosos have we missed out on yeah yeah people have all these different skills and talent i I do this sometimes in my classroom when they're working independently on something and you know i mean there's there's book learning to be done there's Mm -hmm. like you know sometimes yeah you gotta sit down and we gotta research this yeah (laughs) and it's like okay you know what I'll sometimes, you know, see a kid who's just very fidgety or always wanting to look out the window. I'm like, man, this this guy like thrives on doing something else. It's not this. It's kind of hard to see him in this situation, but there's a potential for something else that they're, you know, that's their thing. And that's what he's talking about here is there's there's so much that we can do that we are good at that we're not just, you know, lazy good for nothings. We really enjoy and and everyone enjoys different things you know i will just like pour over wikipedia articles and stuff uh, in my free time like normal people don't do that or whatever but i'm all about kind of researching stuff or or what have you you know and and everyone's into different things that we could we could un- unlock as a society not just in school but in general unlock all these creative all these productive forces that we can't in capitalism because we don't have the time Definitely. Yeah. And like, I'm someone who has like many different interests, like, you know, music and art and cooking and like all these other things that like, yeah, I, I do wish I had more time to get into like fucking ceramics or something like, 
And that could be a useful skill. So maybe that's what I'll do. Yeah. <laughs> I'll go get buff in the ceramics like kiln or whatever. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think I think he gets to atomization too, saying that like, yeah, you're gonna not like your job if all you do is make like one what he calls it, uh the eighteenth part a of a pin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like you're all you do is work on like one tiny bit of a machine that you like you can't even afford to buy. Like, yeah, that job's gonna fucking suck. And like you might not be good at it because like it sucks. <laughs> mm-hmm. Basically arguing that a variety of work is really good for your mental health and it's really good for society too. Like it's if you have access to all these different avenues of work, like you're probably going to be pretty good at one of them. And even if you're not like, who cares? Like you just have to do it for a bit. (laughs) It's more freeing, more like the chance to get to better yourself at this thing. Yeah. Instead of saying, I better be good at this. If I'm not like, I'll have to retool to find a new career. And, and there's just so much, so much of our lives are spent locked up in doing one thing. It's kind of messed up. I mean, like you get a little upset that like you can't really only have one shot unless reincarnation is right. Well, maybe you have more shots at it, but you won't remember it, <laughs> but you have one shot and so much, uh, such a huge percentage of it is spent making sure that you can survive and make not only yeah. that, but making sure that like someone else gets to cut a big chunk of that money for off for themselves. Like, I don't know. It gets, it's, it's kind of infuriating that it's, you're, you, it really that, that, is. That part's just gone, you know? <laughs> it makes me think of the people who like don't like sleeping, which I don't relate to that. But people who are like, I don't like sleeping because it's like a waste of time. And I'm like, well, that's how I feel about work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For real. But if that work was actually useful, mm-hmm. you know, like if I spent like half my day gardening or like cooking for people, like I love cooking. I could yeah. do that, you know, or like whatever and it even is. if you really like your job, then think about this. Changing the social relations. We've said it a number of times already. But like if you really like the job that you're doing, but you were in charge of directing like what use it goes to in society. And like as you and your coworkers and everything, y'all did that for yourselves and for your community instead of for one person to reap all the benefits and then decide for themselves how it, how it goes on. You know, like even if you like your job, changing the structure overall would make it to where you not only like what you're doing, but why you're doing it. Yeah, like this could apply to so many fields. Like if you're a doctor, like you actually will have more time to like sit down with your patients and figure out what they need. And you're not just like trying to prescribe them like pain pills so they go away. Like you have time to help them holistically. You have time to uh, have your staff that's working for you or they're working with you now. Uh, have them mm-hmm. instead of filling out paperwork for insurance companies, uh, they can instead be like more efficiently uh, scheduling for you or so you're not always overworked <laughs> there's tons of things they could do that i you know i don't know enough about the medical field than to, to tell yeah, you either. but like human potential can be better spent <laughs> essentially yeah. yes yeah i like this quote they are in haste to punish laziness or crime without inquiring if the punishment itself does not contain a premium on laziness or crime Hmm. yep Chapter 13, The Collectivist's Wages System. Okay. All right, here's where he talks some shit about the collectivists. <laughs> yeah. The uh, the anarchist collectivists of uh, Mikhail Bakunin and others. Uh, these are the labor notes or the wages cra- uh, crew who want to make sure that everyone gets exactly what they earned. 
And he says there's two key parts, the wages part, of course, and representative government. And that, he shits on that for a while. Yeah. He's <laughs> just like, that's, that's bad. Yeah. Uh, which is true. Um, mm-hmm. Representative governments, he says, even when you've got, you know, fancy, nice things, you've got referendums and proportional representation and minority rights and what have you. I mean, it still kind of sucks. I like this quote. The middle class has simply used the parliamentary system to raise a barrier between itself and royalty without giving the people liberty. Yeah. Where's the lie? We got rid of kings, but we just put someone else there instead. New boss. He's saying wages and labor notes, they're bad. They perpetuate elements of capitalism and they lead to the return of private property. Yeah, I, I like this point. As long as labor notes can be exchanged for jewels or carriages, the owner of the house will willingly accept them for rent. You could stockpile your hours. You could trade your hours. Like you can do all kinds of shit. Like that's just money, guys. You made money again. (laughs) Yeah. And the problem with money is that you don't have free access and not like access in terms of like access to healthcare sort of style. But I mean like free real like you can take this. Food is not free. Everything's not free if you're paying it for it with money. And so that means what it effectively means is that people have the right to keep things from you. Right. So we have so we can determine who gets to eat, who gets to live in a house instead of saying that that's everybody's right. I think this is interesting, though, because he's not just targeting the collectivists here, but he's targeting like the transitional worker state of like, you know, a Marxist approach or, or any sort of I mean, of, uh, or what Karl Marx advocated in the Communist Manifesto. Right. Is like you I mean, you're paying wages of a sort to people. Yeah, from each according to their ability to each according to their contribution in that stage. And he's, you know, and he's saying, no, let's not do that. Yeah. I mean, as someone who didn't know who is referencing with the collectivists, I assume that's who he was talking about. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, they're in the same camp there as far as the wages issue goes, you know, or as far as having a state goes, although they, you know, their state is not parliamentarian at all. It's, it's, it's just a worker state. It's, it's unitary and all that. But next part two. Again, talking about the difference between like professional work and simple work. He's saying again, that's not going to be a thing. Those are going to be melded together. But there was this school of thought that one should be compensated at a higher rate than the other. That like a, a doctor would get paid more than like a, you know, a ditch dick or whatever they are. Right. Yeah. And, and, and he's, he's kind of making the argument, you know, once... You say, okay, we have to have wages. Well, then you have to calculate how the wages are going to be paid, and it can get mm-hmm. really complicated. I don't know. I think it's I think it's fair, his critique of all this. He's saying, again, that it's like maybe you pay people a higher rate for agreeable work or for, for disagreeable work, rather. You know, like, oh, you had to clean out the trash, so you get paid more, or... Maybe you pay like the corporations all at once and then they pay their workers. It's just like all this bullshit. And you're like, what? (laughs) But I think the essence of the argument is right that like it's complicated. You have, you know, and then you kind of have to come up with who's going to organize it. And that's like the state basically. And so he's just like, let's, let's not. (laughs) (laughs) No, thank you. Too difficult. I think not only like too difficult in terms of like this is inefficient, but also it fundamentally undermines the idea of a revolution. Like you can't say no, no private property and then also have wages. Like that's not how, that's not how that works. Because again, (laughs) who's in control of the things that they're not letting you have. 
right? Mm-hmm. Somebody is keeping that as private property and saying only people rich enough to afford this can get it. Whether your money says labor notes on it or not, you know, it's still functioning as money is still functioning as upholding some form of private property, which is messed up. Yeah, are you going to weigh, you know, how hard someone physically worked, how hard someone mentally worked? Like, there's just no, there's no way to do that. Yeah. In part three. Um, what is this paragraph that <laughs> talks about scientific socialism? Oh, you just wanted like a translation of it or? Yeah, he uses too many references here. I'm like, what is this Navy with two V's? What is Marx talking about? Like, I, I didn't understand this paragraph. We know the answer we shall get. They will speak of scientific socialism. They will quote bourgeois economists and Marx too, to prove that a scale of wages has its own raison d'etre. And the labor force of the engineer will have cost more to society than the labor force of the Navy. In fact, have economists not tried to prove to us that if an engineer is paid 20 times more than a Navy, it's because the necessary outlay to make an engineer is greater than that necessary to make a Navy. And has not Marx asserted that the same distinction is equally logical between two branches of manual labor? He could not conclude otherwise, having on his own account taken up Ricardo's theory of value and upheld that goods are exchanged in proportion to the quantity of work socially necessary for their production. You lost me. (laughs) Is a navvy like a knave? A navvy is a construction worker, basically. Okay, great. Uh, And what he's saying here is my opponents will say that unequal wages are there for a reason. They'll say that it takes more for society to produce an engineer than it does a construction worker. Right. Uh, You have to like educate them and and like, you know, all this sort of stuff. They're hard. It's harder to make an engineer than a Navi society wise. And he says that even Marx agrees with this because he argues for the labor theory of value, which is the idea that something's value is determined by the amount of work needed to produce it. Uh, so what he's saying here in, in terms of tossing Marx into there, Marx did spend his life studying like how capitalism works. So when Marx is telling you that like this is, uh, you know, this is why unequal wages are there is because it, you know, society's valuing things based on that. And so he's not saying because he likes it. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, <laughs> he, he's saying he's studying the enemy and he's telling you how it works. But I think Kropotkin's right when. He says that people use Marx's explanations to therefore go back and say, we should have to pay people differently because it costs more to make a make an engineer than make a construction worker. Well, I like in the next paragraph where he says, really, if you think about it, like engineers, scientists, doctors, they're exploiting their capital, their mm-hmm. diplomas. Yeah. Like the, the only reason they're able to get that is because they're rich. Yes, 100%. So Kropotkin lays out this whole like, yeah, it's more expensive to make CEOs than it is to make janitors. And he's like, nope, that's not it. The real reason <laughs> is that, you know, these guys make money off of their their advantages that they already have. Yeah, like who has access to become those things? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Cool. Then I got the second half, the important half. (laughs) Yeah, the important half you got. Yeah, he's saying the revolution should not approve of this sort of bullshit, shouldn't aim for anything less than full equality. We're not trying to, like, lessen the grotesquities of it, you know. And even, like, you know, Bernie is kind of like, let's make this, like, less grotesque. And I agree, but, like, let's go further is what he's saying. That makes sense. And then at the end, he, he wraps up and says, well... So all wages should be kind of equal, right? Like, that'll be fine. That'll be good. Then we get to section four, where he's like, maybe not. (laughs) I also like that he, this quote here, 
put the needs above the works. We don't need to be little bean counters. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, he's he's kind of throwing up his hands at the whole, like, oh, we can't figure out the wages thing. But anyway, that's not what we should be focused about, right? Yeah. And I think this is where he starts to touch on... He doesn't necessarily say, like, disability rights. I, I think that's just a product of his time. But yeah. he does acknowledge that, like, people have different capacities for work. You know, he, he says, like, you know, how are you going to deal with, like, a woman who has a baby and, like, the baby's keeping her up all night and, like, she can't do as much work as somebody else? Or, like, age differences. And, like, there's a lot of reasons you you physically might not be able to work as much as somebody else. Yes, yeah. I, he shits on charity, too. I, I love that quote of... The idea of wounding first and healing afterwards. Woo! That is what charity is, isn't it? Yes, exactly. <laughs> we covered this in our charity episode. Oh, yeah. Uh, but he's he's kind of saying, like, there's a, a Malcolm X quote that goes along with this, too. Like, if a, a man stabs you, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. drives a knife in seven inches and pulls it back two inches and wants you to be happy. Yep. Like, come on, why, like, why are we doing the damage that causes the problems that charity then has to, to remedy? Why are we doing those in the first place? That's just back asswards. <laughs> yeah. So well-being for all, he says, that's the prescription, bread, shelter, and ease for all, which I'm here for. Yeah, I haven't eaten breakfast, so I love the bread part. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> all right, chapter 14, consumption and production. I I like this kind of like logic puzzle. Like a lot of people are like, oh, well, you have to make the things before you can figure out how to consume the things. And he's like, no, you need to figure out like how much people need before you can like make stuff. Right. What are you going to (laughs) make? Yeah. You can't just start making random shit and be like, I hope somebody wants this. (laughs) But that is, yeah, that's almost what happens. Like (laughs) it is, it is. So yeah, he's saying we proceed first from human needs. That's the consumption end of it. And then figure out how to produce. Okay. It, I mean, and it, that's smart. It gives you the right goal. Avoids the trap of, well, this is how we've always done it, you know. <laughs> he describes it as a scientific approach. Yeah, he calls it the physiology of society. I really love that. It, it's like he compares it to taking care of like a plant or something. Like, oh, all right, what do are, what are humans like? They like food. They like water. <laughs> they like TV. It's the alien <laughs> you know? game. It is the alien game, for sure. <laughs> it is just, like, kind of abstracting it to, like... It's playing the Sims. With playing the Sims, yeah. yes. <laughs> what do people need? Let's take care of those things. And also, what do they need to thrive? Yeah. And I, I do want to, you know, insert my defense of that, that this is not a significant departure from Marxism, I would say. Like, Marx and Engels... They do talk about driving the productive forces and stuff, but but it's in the context of serving human needs. They're not just like, we want to make more Lamborghinis. <laughs> they want to increase productive forces so that we can direct, you know, they have this goal in mind too. So I think that these are just two different avenues to get to the same place. I think so too. Okay. Um, next section, overproduction. Next section. Yeah. I love how this is framed as like the boogeyman <laughs> for economists. Mm, yeah. And I mean, honestly, a lot of times it is like, you know, overproduction, you produce too much stuff that people can't afford. And then boom, the economy crashes. Oh, we had too much of this. We had too much of that. He argues that, yes, there is, you know, overproduction in a sense, but it's only in terms of the market. It's uh, countries are exporting stuff, but 
it's more it's because they produce more of it than working people there can afford to buy at a price that benefits the capitalists. Yeah, it's not like, oh no, we have way too much, you know, boots or whatever. It's <laughs> right, like no, we're, it's <laughs> we're swimming through boots in the streets, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's like no one can afford to buy the boots is the actual problem. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And this is all messed up and this doesn't have to like doesn't have to be is what he's saying. Like this isn't rational. What would be rational is figuring out what do we need and then producing that instead of figuring out how much we can produce and then figuring out how we can kind of like toss the scraps to people to satisfy their needs. Okay. Next chapter. Chapter 15, the division of labor. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's, he's making fun of people who are like super into division of labor. Like that's the way to go. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Specialize, specialize, specialize. Right. Yeah. And then he gives the example of like, yeah, if you're just making like the head of a nail, you're going to be bored. We already talked about that. (laughs) And really that this only enriches the rich. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, mean, he's right. This would suck to just only do that the whole time. You know, your employer has more power over you because you like you're a you make the heads of nails like that's not very employable. You are more easily replaceable. All this shit. It just helps the capitalists. And it harms you like you're like mentally bored and like that. That's not good for you. <laughs> yes. And I love how because he says like some socialists basically say we're still going to do this. Yeah. Like keep whatever job you have. Yeah. You were born to sharpen pins while Pasteur was born <laughs> to invent the inoculation against anthrax. And the revolution will leave you both to your respective employments. Well, this is horrible principle. Uh, this is so noxious to society. So brutalizing to the individual source of so much harm. Who wants to fight for that revolution? Yeah, that sounds horrible. And I I like that he kind of brings it back to imperialism, basically saying, like, we do this to other nations, too. We condemn them to monocultures. We condemn them to provide, you know, very specific resources for us. Very right. Yeah. And he also talks about how it just it's labeling and it's stamping people for life. And he just mentioned stamping entire countries, you know, for life and, and thereby destroying the love of the work and their capacity for invention. And I mean, he's describing, you know, alienation, right? You're, yeah. You like doing this thing, but now you, it's completely devoid of any sort of uh, enjoyment anymore. And he gets the idea of like holistic labor being a net positive of you want whoever's working on your agricultural machines to have understand agriculture. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, mm-hmm. you, you want to be actually helping whatever it is you're inventing for. Yeah, so. that makes sense. The next chapter I didn't have a ton on because it was just like very specific stuff. Chapter 16. Decentralization of industry. He talks about like how even though we have condemned these nations to monocultures, everyone is building up their own productive forces now. Basically, the conditions are are improving for this kind of more local work to happen. Is that kind of the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone's developing their own industries. He says, capital goes wherever there are men poor enough to be exploited. Uh, Yeah. I mean, that's still going on. (laughs) That's a thing. And he tries to make this argument that uh, through this sort of discussion of the silk trade in part two, that the tendency of trade, as for all else, is toward decentralization. I thought this was interesting because I'm like, mm, what about like what we read in Open Veins where like countries like fuck over other countries who do try to do that? 
Yeah. The trend changed on him. <laughs> yeah. That, that's what I was wondering. I was like, yeah, that was my parentheses of when was this written? <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's the trend changed on him, especially in the modern world with the rise of like containerization and globalization, and all that stuff. Like it's cheaper to have a global supply chain now. So you don't see as much of this like local industry. And you're right. In open veins, we were talking about how local industry was suppressed because of that. So, I mean, economically, this is not how things are happening. This now. doesn't hold up. I think ecologically, it kind of makes sense to pursue a more decentralized thing. If you're thinking about the footprint of shipping things all around the oh, world. For sure. You know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I, I think in section three, you also get to kind of the practicalities of it too. If you're working locally, you are able to adapt to local conditions like, you know, weather and, you know, whatever it is you can grow and, and things like that. Like you're, you're probably going to do a better job. <laughs> yeah. So in section three, he's kind of talking about the changes that will happen in the revolution compared to that system, you know, and it's like, it's more than just like going back to work. You're going to have to be making a whole bunch of changes. Yeah. Like you're now, it's a, it's a little, not isolationist, because I, I, it can be. I think in the mm -hmm. early days it will be. Yes, that's what he's saying, is uh, this global supply, uh, it, it crashes on you, like, immediately, and you've got to do things for yourself for a bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, we're all going to be eating very seasonally. <laughs> yes, yeah. And when the commune first springs up, that's what you're looking at. Eventually, you know, when you have the Federated Communes of Earth, like you can trade for all this sorts of cool shit. But at first, you're going to be very self-sufficient. <laughs> he gets into into agriculture here. So citizens will be obliged to become agriculturists. Yeah. So there uh, he says, it's not like, you know, we're not going to turn the cities into the countryside. And it's just, you know, now you're all peasants. <laughs> yeah, we're not going to pull pot it. Yeah. It's just like you are doing that work to provide for your for your area you know everybody's got to do part of it it's kind of like at the beginning of the pandemic when everyone started a little victory gardens so they wouldn't have to go to the store so much yep and again people are still you know they're not solely relying on that we still have the scraps of the old society to to tie this over uh, and then he starts talking about uh, the near miraculous sort of advances that we're going to start making <laughs> in the field of agriculture that carries over into the beginning of the next chapter yeah. Uh, I had a question, though. Who are these uh, champ them? I don't know how to say it because it's French. Is uh, it I would assume the champ de mar. There we go. Champ de mar for the Feast of Federation. Who are those dudes? All right. So this was um, the, called the Festival of the Federation or the Feast of the Federation. It was this big party in France in 1790. It was to commemorate the beginning of the French Revolution. It was like the one year anniversary, you know, it was held at the champ de mars which was at the time, it's, is now in Paris, but at the time it was kind of outside of the city. And now it's like southeast of the Eiffel Tower. That's where we're talking about. They already had this kind of clear area, but they were building up kind of a festival grounds for it. Uh, they completed it in time only because of uh, thousands of volunteer laborers who were working real hard through what were called the wheelbarrow days because they were always hauling stuff around, you know. Uh, this was a really, like, nerdy festival when it finally goes <laughs> down. Everyone was doing this mass patriotism, sort of pledging allegiance to the new constitutional monarchy that they had just put in place, you know, and Ugh. King Louis the Sixteenth and all them were doing this, too. 
stay they had home. a big uh they had well they had a big feast okay i'll go to the feast <laughs> <laughs> uh but yeah that's that's what he's talking about there so people were working with this like volunteer spirit and stuff oh okay eh, nerds <laughs> okay the last chapter chapter 17 can't forget the farmers agriculture that's right he gets into so he starts off by talking about how good we are at producing in in agriculture saying like we can already produce enough to satisfy everyone's needs in manufacturing in agriculture because of these scientific advancements you know we're we're going to be able to produce a ton and i mean i think this holds true nowadays too you have way more people but you also have way more science yeah yeah i think that's true and i think he points out like again the inefficiencies of the current system you know he's talking in 1890s but you still see this today where like you are growing a fuck ton of like corn so it can be used in like ethanol and shit you know you're growing you have your like your subsidies for like shit that isn't actually like we don't actually need that much of yeah we don't need that much corn syrup for example exactly that's a good example yeah I mean, he really repeats himself a lot. Like, yeah. you know, we're going to have improved working conditions. You're only going to be working for a little bit. Like, you science, know. Science, y'all. Science. We're going to science this. <laughs> Which is cool. I like this distinction between intensive and extensive agriculture. Really the idea of working smarter, not harder. Extensive being like grow fast, just all of it, just fucking go, you know, which is, I think is what we do now. It's just like mass agriculture. Whereas intensive is like, all right, let's like really take care of this soil. Like, I think it's more sustainable, sustainability focused, getting the largest crop possible out of a smaller piece of land and like really taking care of the land. And for a less amount of work. So one of the elements that capitalism doesn't care how much it puts into it is labor because like that's your sweat, not theirs. So (laughs) making the job easier too. For sure, yeah. Like, the people will be happier working because, yeah, it's, it's going to be more pleasant. And, yeah. So, then we get to section two. I think here in section two, he talks about the reason that this can't happen right now. Yeah, yeah. I wrote it as obstacles to progress. Yeah, he gives some examples. And his key point here is, without a revolution, neither tomorrow nor the day after tomorrow, we'll see agricultural advances like this. Because it's not in the interest of landowners and capitalists and because peasants who would find their profit in it neither have the knowledge nor the money nor the time to obtain what is necessary to go ahead. So, like, that's why we can't do it now. Yeah, yeah. Section three has a lot of calculations that uh, (laughs) didn't seem necessary. He said he wasn't going to get into them, but... And then he did. Yeah. What a nerd. Uh, The point seems to be that agriculture can be reorganized to produce enough for all with a lot less work. I wrote, LOL, I have no frame of reference for these numbers. Well, I, I actually <laughs> looked a few up so that I could kind of give context to this. Because actually, oh, okay. history is going to show that even within capitalism, we're going to see some of this. Uh, during the 16th century in Europe, between 55 and 75% of the population was engaged in agriculture. By the 19th century, when he's writing, this had dropped to between 35 and 65%. So a lot fewer farmers feeding a lot more people. So that's why he's talking about all these scientific advancements, right? Yeah. He's like, wow, we got really good at this. Yeah. Now, globally, you're looking at around 30%. Oh, wow. Okay. And then very disproportionate between countries and stuff. But Definitely. The point overall, I think, is that people are, with science are going to be able to grow a shit ton of crops. <laughs> yeah. One thing that I bumped up against is his obsession with science. I'm like, cool. Love science for sure. Like, I think we will necessarily have to fold in like sustainability and climate change stuff like 
even when he talks about like needing less and less land for cattle i'm like is that okay to do like environmentally and also like ethically and also like disease wise like i don't know if we should be like cramming cattle in very small areas yeah and also we should probably reduce our meat consumption overall like sometimes he gets so excited about like economizing agriculture that i i don't think he's just not there like that's not a problem for him yeah yeah i don't think that was (laughs) that's what he was looking at section four he talks about greenhouses we can also do this stuff in greenhouses yeah hydroponics all of it (laughs) And I guess that sort of helps you break the seasonal thing. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that'll definitely help. Um, He talks about grapes for a very long time. (laughs) Very nice. Grapes, we like our wine. section five. Section five is just grapes. (laughs) Section five is grapes. Um, (laughs) And really the idea of like everyone kind of becoming a gardener. Kitchen gardens are, are really big. Yeah, you can, with 10 hours of work a year per inhabitant, you can get pretty much whatever you want. That sounds kind of cool, you know. Yeah, and says, these hours of work would become hours of recreation spent among friends and children in beautiful gardens. Like, sounds great. Oh, I love that. (laughs) If only humanity had the consciousness of what it can, and if that consciousness only gave it the power to will. If it only knew that cowardice of the spirit is the rock on which all revolutions have stranded until now. So he's he's saying, like, we could do it if we wanted to. We could do it. (laughs) Which, I mean, definitely depends on the material conditions. Yeah, just like we're going we can do it. It's going to be nice. <laughs> Guys, if it sounds like we're rushing, it's because he really repeats himself a lot in the end. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, uh gets to section 6, the summary time basically, right? Mm-hmm. Uh he says, "Let's do the revolution. People will turn out. We'll start building the commune together for the common good. It can work if we dare." Yeah. The only thing that may be wanting to the revolution is the boldness of initiative. I like that. With our minds already narrowed in our youth, enslaved by the past and our mature age until the grave, we hardly dare to think. If a new idea is mentioned before venturing on an opinion of our own, we consult musty books a hundred years old to know what ancient masters thought on the subject. And here we are. <laughs> We're doing musty books. <laughs> we are doing <laughs> that. <laughs> he called us out. But uh, but yeah, yeah, we have we have we're looking for the boldest of initiative. He ends on this real high note of the revolution triumphant of uh, a new society marching to conquer the future together. A life of ease for everyone. The dream of living without encroaching on others. Uh, basically, you know, a utopia, man. It sounds great. Yeah. I mean, overall, I, I loved this book. I thought it was great. Yeah. Definitely repeats himself. Like, I found myself repeating myself a lot. Like, this is going to be a heavy <laughs> edit. My notes are very repetitive, too. So if you're reading those, sorry. <laughs> so, you know. I, but I think it is a little bit effective because it, it, it kind of all, it reminds you how much it all ties together, I think. I think it's effective in that regard. I think he gets in the weeds sometimes, detailing things out as any kind of more utopian-leaning person will. But um, overall, I liked it. Again, I'll emphasize I'm, I'm there for any road we want to take to communism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm down. I'm going to give this a 4.5 out of 5. Nice. I really liked it. Really, the only thing that lost me was sometimes he get he gets too into numbers, and every now and then, like I disagree with I disagree with his art takes, <laughs> and and sometimes like I a few paragraphs went over my head, but overall very readable, I would say. Yeah, uh, I will give it a four star. Uh, I liked its readability. Uh, I thought it was very accessible in terms of just introducing these ideas to people in general. Uh, and it's, you know, it's got a good basis of like, these are, these should be our goals. We should 
strive to provide everything for everyone just as a condition of being a human, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Which is like, that's my shit right there. Yeah. You know, of course I have my leanings toward, <laughs> I look at history and I say, well, we really haven't pulled this one off. We've pulled off other, you know, with uh, w- other revolutions, with other uh, tendencies or, or theories of, of how to do it. But hey, I'd love to see this one work. He did shit on your bros quite a lot in this, so yeah, I understand. Yeah, but hey, <laughs> I, again, I want to see this succeed too, so. Cool. <laughs> okay. We are both tired and hungry, so we're going to end. <laughs> Next time, we are actually going to have our first guest episode. I'm so excited. Heck yeah. We'll be bringing on one of our best friends onto the podcast, Kenny, and we're going to be talking about one of my favorite things, Star Trek. Hell yeah. It'll be so wait. fun. <laughs> <laughs> In the meantime, you can find us online. We are on Twitter at Teach Communism, Instagram at Teach Me Communism. You can shoot us an email, teachmecommunism at gmail.com. Any of those places are great for questions, suggestions, feedback, all that good stuff. You can also review us on Apple Podcasts. You should also do that because it really helps people find the show and we love it. We're on YouTube. If that's how you prefer to listen to podcasts, just give us a search there. And finally, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash teachmecommunism for five bucks a month. You get access to all of our notes for this episode and previous episodes. So for this one, you'll be getting my marked up copy of this book. Well, not like the book. It'll get a PDF. Um, and <laughs> You can buy it get, yourself. Yeah, yeah. You can print it out, learn how to print <laughs> and bind and all that stuff. And you'll get our like notes that we took alongside of it. It'll be great. I think that covers it, right? I think so. Oh, yeah. We have shirts. Go check those out. T Public is the website for that. Um, just give us a search there. Um, the link is in our show notes. Yeah, they're super cool shirts from super cool people. Hey, thanks. And yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for discussing this book with me today, comrade. Thank you for discussing it with me. It was fun. All right. And one day we'll all think about it together and bring about the revolution. As we're outside in our beautiful gardens. Hell yeah. We'll be like, remember that time we read that book? We're here. (laughs) Here we go. (laughs) All right. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in. You can catch us next week on another episode of Teach Me Communism, where the class struggle is always in session. Bye. Goodbye.